3: for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. That's right.
4: Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the little-known facts and secret histories behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your disco divas of details, your platform-wearing pals of pedantic podcasting, your cocaine-fueled friends of ultra-funky facts, escorting you past the velvet ropes of vagary and into the basement of banality. (laughs) My name is Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today we are talking about a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah, a club that even a non-dancing homebody like me would have loved to have gone to and
5: never would have gotten past the door. Question. Yes. We got sodomy out of Sodom. What did we get out of Gomorrah? Gonorrhea. Asked and answered. Yeah. Moving on.
4: (laughs) We are talking about the night spot to end all night spots, Studio 54. I am so excited to talk about this. This is an episode that I've wanted to do for literally years now, but the research took forever. I kicked off 2023 with a deep dive into my beloved Titanic, and this is almost as intense. (laughs) It's, I gotta say, it's probably one of the most fascinating topics we've ever tackled. I just can't wait to dive in. Heigl, God bless you. You've been encouraging me to take this on for a long, long (laughs) time now, which actually kind of surprised me a bit. What was it about
5: Studio 54 that appealed to you? Um, first of all, like just the time period in New York, like the you know
4: taxi driver era
5: yeah, exactly the the Ford to city drop dead, son of Sam, punk, um other things surely happening. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the confluence of like hubris mm, <laughs> yeah and degeneracy and um uh, and music, <laughs> you know that's that's it. And, like, I detest club culture. Why is that? It's fucking stupid. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't you know. Don't, you don't view it as a, a w- way for artists to get together?
5: Um. Yeah, sure. But, like, broadly speaking, I think I have a hair up my ass about this <coughs> this date and time specifically. Because it's sort of when live musicians started to get faded out. Right. You know? and And, like, live music. This is, like this era is sort of like ground zero for middle-class gigging musicians kind of the, their death knell it was like djs you know and dj culture and like every club being like oh the draw is no longer like i don't have to hire a band and promote the band i can just have someone play music that's much more efficient <laughs> like and then you know this golden era of like this is like a pet topic i I talk about a lot but like i think a lot of the reason that we've canonized like a very particular era of musicians in the states and the reason that they are so good at what they do is because the club circuit through their formative era was really an incubator for just learning how to work a crowd the beatles in hamburg yeah building chitlin circuit for Jimi hendrix yeah the chitlin circuit i mean like you know i i always think of like like the jazz guys or Motown, like recording through the day and then just going to gig at night or like the, the R&B club circuit that was like, yeah, it was or even like, you know, I, I was listening to this Creedence live album at one point. It really hit me because like they were kind of like an R&B blues kind of cover band and and just doing that circuit or even like Neil Young, like even these guys who didn't have like crazy dumb chops in terms of like shredding, you know, they knew how to craft solos and build tension and release musically and do all of this like higher level non-chop aspects of music and they were able to do that because they were able to log these insane hours where it almost didn't even matter that they would fail or like that they might not hit it every night but it was like this insane intensive that enabled them to You know become these these musicians that they were and um even going back to like juke joint era with like blues musicians Mm -hmm. and it's just like yeah and then like as soon as djs became a thing like that just started trending downwards and and that's why you know bands sound like dog today Yeah, old man yells at cloud segment over. No, but I mean, like, it is a real thing. Like, I mean, and there's all kinds of other shit that goes into it, you know, like capitalism, and the dismantling of the welfare state, like, you know, television in this era, Marquee Moon is like a second or first take. And it was because they lived super cheaply and rehearsed like six hours a day before they went to track that album. Like, you don't the get... The Ramones album, too, Yeah, right? you just don't get to do that as a musician anymore. You literally... It is just unsustainable to um gig and live that way like gone you know completely bygone era sorry unless you're independently wealthy so in a way this is like it's it's very bittersweet for me because i'm like this and you know as much as i love hip-hop like the dj culture that came out of that is just like yep this is when that started to die so sorry i hear that i understand that i validate that <laughs>
4: I, you know, I mean, taking this on, I initially thought it would just be a great excuse to talk about, you know, decadence and depravity and great stories of celebrities behaving badly in a really interesting era. But the more I learned about the development, not only of club culture in the late 60s, early 70s, but also disco as a genre, it made me respect both the club and disco, which is kind of a punchline as being this music that has a lot of integrity because it came from a lot of disenfranchised people, which is very interesting. And Studio 54 became really a haven for Mm -hmm. a a lot of, especially the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something we'll talk more about later. (laughs) So that was something that was, that surprised me the more I dug into it. I expected this to be a tale of irresponsible people, yeah. being greedy and stupid, and it became a lot more. And about while that. it is that, well,
5: <laughs> there is two things so can be true more. at the same time. Yes, that um, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, disco is. I obviously, I grew up a central Pennsylvania punk. I was like, oh, f*** disco. But then, like, I had a music professor in college who's like, I don't understand the beef with disco and like four on the floor. It's just like everybody deserves to dance. <laughs> I was like, you can find this beat. And I was like, that is a beautiful sentiment. (laughs) I have
4: changed my mind. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Well, we'll have a whole uh, segment on the development of disco a little later on. But Studio 54 as a club, it's been described as many things. An American Bacchanal, The Wizard of Oz staged by Fellini. And one of my favorite descriptions comes from a 2020 New York Times piece by Guy Treble and Ruth LaFerla. It was a flash of brilliance that glittered from the rubble of a bankrupt city. Studio 54 was an Aladdin's cave tucked amid the porn palaces of Midtown. I love that. (laughs) Like a shooting star, Studio 54 burned bright but fast. Its heyday lasted a scant 33 months before its renegade owners Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager were hauled off to prison for... uh, One of the most egregious tax evasion cases in American history, which we'll get to. But in that brief 33-month period, it became more than a nightclub. It became a phenomenon, an unprecedented mix of glamorous sophistication and primal hedonism. It was a nexus of music, fashion, and newfound social freedom. The fact that the building had previously been an old CBS TV studio was fitting because Studio 54 offered a place for anyone to live their own fantasy without persecution or judgment. It was a place not only for a generation raised under the pressures of Watergate and the Vietnam War to let loose, but more importantly, a place for members of the LGBTQ community to feel like they could fully celebrate the act of being themselves, which is precious. Well, We have way too much to talk about, so I'm going to skip the fact teases. Let's just go for it. In lieu of cocaine, I have a big mug of coffee right here. (laughs) Here is everything you didn't know about Studio 54. Got to plug in Young Hearts from Free Here.
5: I think it's got to be like Disco Inferno or Boogie Wonderland or something like (laughs) that. Just to anything in the Boogie Nights soundtrack, it's just got to be as cliche yeah. as possible.
4: Well, to start, allow us to introduce you to the two hosts of the Studio 54 Bacchanal, Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager. These masterminds behind the epic 33-month party met as classmates at Syracuse University, but both were Brooklyn boys originally. They met when Steve Rubell, a short guy, saw Ian Schrager, who wasn't much taller, wrestling with a six foot eight basketball player and, much like Cool Hand Luke, would not stay down. This resonated with the scrappy undergrad, and they became fast friends. Ian graduated and initially became a real estate lawyer, while the more outgoing, gregarious Steve Rubell opened up a chain of steakhouses in the New York metro area called Steak Loft, which boasted the unforgettable, if not very subtle slogan, make love to your stomach. <laughs> I don't like that. No, I, I don't. Really, I really... Because yeah, I recently I really watched
5: did. Videodrome, which the most <laughs> memorable image in is of a... James Wood's pst, tummy vagina, so <laughs> that's really gross, and I hate that. It was, like, on the menus and everything, yeah. Uh, really, I don't like that, Yeah,
4: mm.
5: No. Bathing suit parts in restaurants. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, come on, man. How'd you, how'd you get your, how'd you pass the food inspection? How'd you get to that? Yeah. Ian Traeger
4: convinced Steve Rebell to ditch the whole steakhouse idea and go into the nightclub business together. Because he was intrigued by the emerging gay club scene. Schrager would evocably described what he witnessed as, quote, "...a kind of intense, tribal-like dancing. It looked like the dance floor was some kind of living organism, rolling and pulsating up and down, breathing in and out, all together as one." Other clubs up to this point had just been basically pickup joints, but these gay dance spots were sensory overload with the music and the lights and the fashion and the sexual electricity... So Steve and Ian teamed up on an early nightclub in Boston, of all places, buying what had been a famous back bay venue called the Boston Tea Party, which may be familiar for some music nerds out there. For uh, It was where the Velvet Underground had a very famous residency in the late 60s. So it's a famous spot. Uh, they also turned one of Steve's steakhouses into a club called the Enchanted Garden. And it was a minor success, but it had the misfortune of being located in Queens, which was not very (laughs) fashionable in the mid-70s. As one club goer later said, no one from Manhattan was going to Queens. And as my aunt would say, you need a passport to get there. (laughs) For burgeoning club owners, Manhattan was the big leagues. But now, Zoolander voice, why disco? (laughs) Disco clubs were becoming the big thing by the mid-70s, and most people believe the name disco refers to the genre of music that was becoming popular at this time, but the term actually predates this by a decade. Disco is short for the French discothèque, which literally means a library of records, similar to the French word bibliothèque or library, a place for many books. Biblio is books. In the early 60s, clubs called discotheques began to open in France that played records for patrons to dance to rather than employ traditional bands. I knew this was the French's fault. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as we were talking about at the top of the episode, this was revolutionary at the time. Club goers got to dance to the original versions of their favorite songs, and club owners got to get away with paying a single DJ rather
5: than a whole band. And musicians were f***ing as everyone wins for patrons yeah everybody wins except for the people who make it of course america and france apparently
4: (laughs) Uh, these were generally a european phenomenon throughout the 60s aside from isolated spots like la's whiskey a go-go which initially modeled itself after a french discotheque but by the mid-70s they were becoming more prominent in the united states and this was supposedly due in part to an influx of jet setters from Europe who were wary of European discos after the socialite J. Paul Getty III was kidnapped from one in Rome in 1973. Hell yeah. Which resulted in the poor kid's ear getting sliced off.
5: Hell yeah. Poor this kid. Was- what a fucking <laughs> bad choice of words. Resulted in the modern day robber baron, aristocratic class, wealth hoarding dragon kid sorry well I mean, this event was
4: dramatized in the 2017 film all the money in the world and no his, his grandfather was i guess john paul getty the first didn't want to pay the ransom because he i think he just felt it would set a bad precedent so the kidnappers sliced the kid's ear off hell yeah Yeah, so this is kind of, seems like kind of a flimsy theory, but I'd seen it cited in numerous sources that this actually was one of the reasons that sparked the discotheque influx in the United States, because Europeans uh, were were scared of something like that happening again. Good.
5: (laughs) They should be. I mean, the rich, anyway. Yeah. Not me.
4: I've also heard an interesting theory that the oil crisis and resulting economic downturn in the mid-70s helped increase the popularity of discos. Because the fee to get into discos was a lot cheaper than going to a rock concert, which had been the primary focal point for youths to meet in the 60s. So that was some of it, too. It is all about economics. You're right.
5: I suppose I buy that.
4: He said angrily. Well, this is a good time as any to go a little deeper and look at the development of the much maligned genre we call disco. The representative quote, aside from just disco sucks, comes from Bob Colaccio, the editor of Andy Warhol's interview magazine. He said, disco came along at the moment when the baby boomers stopped protesting and started dancing. And while this is true, it undersells the genre's rich and fascinating backstory it's really interesting to me that disco has a reputation of being politically vapid corny cash in music since it was born of the most artistically authentic beginnings with disenfranchised social groups who were forced out of the mainstream the story of disco is bookended by two riots that took place a decade apart first the stonewall riots in the summer of 69 and then disco demolition night at chicago's kaminsky park in the summer of 1979 which You'll recall piles of disco records were hauled into the outfield and blown up in a mock ceremony overseen by a local shock jock before a crowd of thousands, including future actor Michael Clark Duncan, rushed the field. <laughs> the first of these riots was steeped in a desire for social justice and equality. All the second of these riots was a knee jerk and really quite stupid reaction to cultural shifts steeped in racism and homophobia. Some, like chic guitarist Nile Rodgers, have likened the event to a Nazi book burning. But we're getting ahead of ourselves.
5: Heigel, talk to us about the development of disco. So, back in 1969, homosexuality was still classified as a mental illness. The FBI reportedly did surveillance on known homosexuals. Probably, James Baldwin is probably the biggest example of that. Yeah. Right? I would think so. Is that why he left the country for France? I wouldn't blame him if there was any other reason to do it. Uh, The Tina Turner model. F*** this place. (laughs) Uh, The post office tracked mail containing gay material. Anyone who appeared to be what would have then referred to as transvestites, uh, which was shockingly the most nuanced term that existed at the time, would be stripped and frisked. Halloween was a major holiday for gay men and trans women back in the 1960s because it was the one day of the year that they could wear gender-affirming attire, like dresses in public, without being arrested. Uh, There are stories of cops congregating outside of known gay haunts on Halloween, wordplay, waiting for 1201 so that they could bust people. Uh, Horrifying. There were laws prohibiting people of the same sex from dancing together in a place that had a liquor license. And as a result, many gay bars, like the famous Stonewall Inn, didn't even bother with a liquor license and just operated as um, an off a private, quote unquote, bottle club. Until 1966, it was illegal to even sell alcohol to someone who you knew was gay. (sighs) (laughs) One of the more unprovable laws on the books, though, I guess. Yeah, post-prohibition law against serving any, quote unquote, disorderly people. God, this country is so stupid. Oh, I'm just I'm just begging for an anger of one star boomer review this episode. I really apologize. <laughs> See, legally not being allowed to serve a gay person a beer. I think that, that's an OK hill to die on. Michael. I think you're OK. Okay, All right. Uh, we'll find out. As a result, many places that were known as gay hangouts were monitored closely by the authorities and raided regularly. Most of the Greenwich Village gay bars in the 1960s were owned by members of the mob who paid off the cops to keep from getting raided more often, a process known whimsically as gayola. (laughs) For example, the famous Stonewall Inn was owned by members of the Genovese crime family. These owners treated the regulars terribly. They watered down the liquor. They overcharged. Stonewall had no running water behind the bar during this period, so dirty glasses were just swished through tubs of water and immediately reused. yeah that's really gross yeah and there were also reports that the owners were blackmailing some of the wealthier customers due to their sexual orientation which provided vastly more income than the bar profits <coughs> uh even well connected gay bars were rated about once a month gay men apparently made it a habit to carry bail money on them when they went out just to be safe god horrifying this country ellipses <laughs> trails off Staring at a middle distance. Uh, these practices began to loosen somewhat following the Stonewall riots in June of 1969. And by the way, mm-hmm. you and I are both the VH1-pilled boomer <laughs> lo- hagiography lionizing generation. How yes. late was it until you learned about Stonewall? Oh, man. it, it Embarrassingly late. Completely I... glossed over in all of the All Along the Watchtower, Fortunate Son soundtrack. Oh, 60s zero. montage horse. We were fed as kids, right? Like, I do learning about it in high school. I mean, maybe no, I, I, I don't think in Central so. Central Pennsylvania. May I think? I college is my is my memory. Yeah. But yeah. like, what the f-? July of '69, Ground Zero, in the middle of all this other life-changing, uh, generation-defining. Sh- we just don't, We nobody knows about it because it's gay people. You know what? I don't even know if it was, co- I think it was, I learned about it in college because I
4: lived within like three blocks of Stonewall in Greenwich Village at the time mm. for school. That might have, and I probably saw a plaque or something. That was probably it. Yeah, no, it's really embarrassing. I don't
5: remember how late it was that I learned, but it was fairly recently. In 17 weeks on the Civil War because I lived within like two hours of Gettysburg. <laughs> Gettysburg. Not, not on Stonewall. Anyway, Google Stonewall if you don't know what we're talking about. Too long to get into here, but really another way. Worth yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag worth it. Oh. Even after the Stonewall riots, though, many clubs had house rules banning same-sex dancing another great tangent to get into by the way is cabaret laws uh in new york city like if you want a yeah, real, oh my god you know, real insane discourse on uh on bureaucracy run amok it was an incredible way for them to also completely racially profile and disenfranchise black musicians um Delonious monk being one of the most famous the guy was on like the cover of time magazine he couldn't play in new york because his cabaret license had been revoked anyway These rules gave way to the rise of underground parties, the most famous of which was hosted by DJ David Mancuso. Mancuso threw invite-only raves every Saturday in his Soho apartment, popularly known as The Loft. I assume it was a loft. I'm guessing, yeah. It'd be funny if it was like a (laughs) one-bedroom. I guess an SRO. Nobody would have come otherwise. (laughs) That's true. Shout out to lofts, man. Yeah, you, know, you know, it's such an incubator for everything from free jazz to minimalism throughout this this time period. Do you ever live in a loft? No, no, I didn't either. No, yeah,
4: I, I live like i within sight. I can see it out the window of
5: the McKibben lofts
4: and uh, oh, bedbug central now.
5: <laughs> Is as it really? Oh God, yeah. I mean, that was you know, I, I. It's been funny with this indie sleaze revival because you will lived through peak indie sleaze because you were in college in New York, but I got to it I think as it was dying. Mm. um but yeah we're I, all dying heidel but it's true uh lcd sound system guy voice i was there when the mckibben <laughs> when the mckibben lobs were infested by bed bugs um i slept there i had friends who, who lived there and i gross now i'm
4: yeah I don't remember. It seemed clean to me.
5: I'm sure there's a vice. But then again, I was 20. I'm sure there's like a vice oral history of the McKibben Lofts. Oh, there is. There is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, according to his Wikipedia page, David Mancuso insisted on playing music that was soulful, rhythmic, and imparted words of hope, redemption, or pride. Nothing white. Uh, <laughs> True. Adm- admission was $2 to pay for rent and overhead, but attendees were never turned away for lack of funds. Organic dishes, breads, and freshly squeezed fruit juice were freely available for attendees. Nothing was ever sold on the premises, otherwise the police could argue that he was operating a professional establishment without a license. And this was a very real threat um, since the loft was raided early in its existence and Mancuso was arrested for operating an unlicensed cabaret. He successfully disputed the charges since there was no alcohol for sale and events were not open to the public. After the raid, Mancuso was more cautious about police presence and set up a warning system using lights. When I the love lights this. When the lights turned red, the party paused. Everyone turned down the music, turned up the lights, and sat on the floor. <laughs> uh, we should have had that at the lodge. <laughs> was that illegal? I mean, I, I don't know if, I'm, if it's a bad idea
4: to talk about this, but the performance spot slash practice spot that we had that also doubled as a performance venue. Oh, yeah. Super legal. We sold booze. The second you exchange money for alcohol, it becomes illegal. <laughs> oh, that was oh, I didn't realize that was not a legal spot.
5: No. Oh no, dude. Cool. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know that. Wow. Proud uh, to have played there. <laughs> uh, these underground parties were places where people could gather and express themselves freely without fear of homophobic or racial discrimination. One of the organizers would describe the demographic breakdown thusly. It was probably about 60% black and 70% gay. There was a mix of sexual orientation, there was a mix of races, mix of economic groups, a real mix where the common denominator was music. And the way that the music was played was a good old-fashioned combo of two turntables and a microphone and a mixer to ensure the unbroken flow of tunes. These house parties elevated the role of the DJ from a mere song selector to the vibe director of the evening. Ugh! Sorry, I'm sorry. There's I some shouldn't have written that. DJing I'm... at Bossa Nova. Is Bossa Nova even still open? What's Bossa Nova? Bossa Nova Civic Club on uh, Broadway. Oh, I don't know. He definitely calls himself a vibe curator, or vibe director. <laughs> they control the music, the lights, the atmosphere, and even the temperature from their booth. The popularity of the loft parties gave rise to clubs like Paradise Garage and The Gallery, the later of which was founded by DJ Nicky Siano, who was famous for his innovative three-turntable system that allowed him to loop dance breaks as much as he wanted, laying the groundwork for countless genres like hip-hop, house, and, yes, disco. And he would go on to spin at Studio 54. So the music played at these gay underground parties was largely soul and R&B from black clubs. A turning point came when DJ David Mancuso started playing Manu Dubongo's 1972 proto disco hit Soul Makossa," Probably known for this these days as being the inspiration for the spoken word section in Michael
4: Jackson's one of these starting something. Mama say, Mama saw, mama sakusa. That's clo- close, enough, Good. I'll, I'll live with that. Good job. Thank you. Uh, you're an ally.
2: <laughs> <laughs> mama, mama. Saw, mama.
5: Mancuso came across the relatively obscure single in a Brooklyn record store and liked it so much that he passed it to a radio DJ who started playing it on the air. By 1974, it went mainstream and broke into the top 40, making it both one of the first records to break through as a club hit and also one of the earliest disco-esque songs. The sonic stew that is canonical disco has its origins in funk, soul, salsa traditions from the black and Latino communities. Another major ingredient was the Philly soul streaming from Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff's hit factory, particularly groups like TSOP, The Sound of Philadelphia, and the OJs. One of disco's most distinctive features, the exceedingly easy to dance to four on the floor drum beat, is often credited to Gamble and Huff session player Earl Young, notably his playing on Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes 1973 song, The Love I Lost, which is widely cited as the first disco drumming. I, sure. But a lot of Motown is also that. Dun dun. Whoa. Well, yeah, dun, yeah. Dun dun. Love love was a sweet love.
4: Love
5: love. Other musical hallmarks of disco include the percussive guitar wah wah. Uh, I think Isaac Hayes' immortal theme from Shaft, another proto disco mainstay. Heavy syncopation on the hi hat, Latin tinged percussion. Yeah, this is a great era for auxiliary percussion gigs. Yeah. yeah, you got the got cowbell, a lot of congas, probably some wind chimes, um, <laughs> jazzy extended chords, uh, strings, rhythmic chicken scratch guitar style from uh, uh, the great lineage of James Brown guitarists like uh, Catfish Collins and Jimmy Chank Nolan, <laughs> I believe is his his full nickname. Because of the
4: sound that he would make when he would just,
5: that's really good. Yeah, and of course the iconic, you failed, you were missing your duties. You did not mention the the iconic octave bass parts. Boom, 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 As your former bass player, I'm, 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 I'm very sorry for that. I think I mean, well, I this is fresh in my mind because I played a a house party actually in December that was all disco stuff and um. You hear it a lot on ABBA, but you also hear it in like Boogie Wonderland has a has a pretty heavy uh, Octave part and um, I don't think I can I'm just spitballing here But it might come from early synths and sequencers since that was an easy pattern to program like a faux arpeggiator Just like I'm um, good of MGMT now Yeah, speaking of McKibben lofts Ugh. I could smell that phrase <laughs>
4: how do i do in that section you know a lot more about the development of music
5: and no it's good i mean it's funny that disco has you know a big the thing that i would just add to that is is more cultural which is that disco in the retelling of it has become so white and straight washed that it is deeply a crime you know like again laying the blame squarely at the foot of in my experience your former employer vh1 but you know everyone thinks of like (laughs) you know, Casey and the sunshine band or ABBA. And it's like, yeah, those people sold a boatload of money and made it onto TV, but this is black and gay music at its, at its core, you know, and you don't really in the popular consciousness that is just, it's just become at least in the way I was exposed to it. That's part of the reason why I think the ire was so developed towards it, you know, that, that it was like Chicago shock jock meatheads who were just innately, on some instinctive level repulsed by it, you know, um, it says a lot about the bedrock of internalized racism and homophobia. That is this country is built on. Well, I think there's two theories. There's that there's, as you said, the inherent racism and homophobia that this country is built
4: on. But I think there was also people reacting to the objectively bad stuff that was coming out as cheap cash ins as really bad, you know, watered down, versions of disco that were made by
5: predominantly white people yeah but um, yeah but i was white gonna record say executives yeah i mean sure but there's there's always the cash grabs i mean there's always like right literally every form of music has its has its garbage cash grabs coming in it just seems like yeah i do know i i <sighs> i it, it's funny too because i think about like you also think about like this era as sort of birthing like hard rock and metal and really like the really ugly strains of like macho, like aggressive music. Like I think of Kiss and like Black Flag too. And obviously I love that stuff. But I mean, like when you really think about like what the polar opposite of disco was, it's like Gene Simmons, you know, even though they made a disc, they made several disco songs or it's and we're on a disco label. But it's like, you know, or like Ted Nugent, like it it really was concurrent with the rise of like lunkhead rock and then also punk rock and i think because so much of mainstream america is more comfortable with male posturing and misogyny than gay and non-white stuff uh it was very easy to poison the country against disco um and there may have also just been a touch of people being like why in god's like what what is this weird shit coming from the coasts you know because there's also like a, you know, you can't really discount the San Francisco side of things or like, um, even LA to, but I think San Francisco at the time period would have been way more influential as a gay Mecca in terms of music culture. Yeah. There's such a rich stew of reasons why people hate this stuff. <laughs> I mean, also I, I, maybe I'm wrong. You could probably disprove me on this, but I
4: feel like this was a genre maybe for the last time where a lot of artists who had cut their teeth in the sixties on either rock and roll or even older artists. Like I think Sinatra and even Ethel Merman, they (laughs) tried to follow the trend and cut a disco song. The beach boys did. Oh, sure. Um, Karen Carpenter tried to. Yeah. I, I, Paul McCartney has one. I mean, The Rolling Stone's Miss You is basically a disco song. And so maybe that was part of it, too, is that instead of just being a new genre that existed alongside rock and roll, it actually became something that changed artists who were known for doing other things. Well, and maybe that made it seem more
5: oppressive, for lack of a better term. That's interesting. Everybody man. had their disco song. No, that's f-ing interesting. And, and I'm going to take it one step further into One Star or itunes reviews and say that it was perhaps the first genre that couldn't successfully be stolen or was so so Mm. alienating when white people tried to steal it the way that they had for the previous 50 years that it introduced this it was so uncanny their efforts were so uncanny and repulsive that it immediately embarrassed them in a way that it didn't when they were able to successfully steal blues or r and I mean, Beach Boys is a
4: great example. In 1962, 63, they ripped off uh, you know, Chuck Berry riffs to do Surfing USA and Fun, Fun, Fun. And then uh, 15 years later in the late 70s, they tried their hand at doing disco stuff and didn't
5: work, yeah. Well, early rock and roll stuff is so fascinating to me because like, some of the stuff that we think of canonically you're, this is, you're gonna have a bitch of a time editing this. I'm just letting it go. <laughs> but I'm galaxy braining here. I'm I'm cooking. <laughs> I'm cooking. Um, you know, early enroll is is really an interesting example because it was coming from the rural South, where there was a general a real commingling of white and black culture. I mean, if you read a lot of the early blues guys, they were like obsessed with Jimmy Rogers, the oh, the yodeling yeah. cowboy. Um, and vice versa obviously and and when you do think of like 50s rock and roll authentically it is not just black music it's also quote-unquote hillbilly harmonies and bluegrass <laughs> influence like you know you really do have to think of like as the beatles like carl perkins and motown and chuck berry and all this stuff and and i think disco being a wholly urban post-industrial genre and invention that equation couldn't be repeated in as quote unquote an authentic way as early rock and roll. So and it, it was I think it, it that's why that everybody's disco phase is so galling and glaring because it was really uh uh without precedent in in the same way that they were able to successfully steal the blues or or R&B or or, or you know in Sinatra's case Billy Holiday or what have you. Well that's interesting man. <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? <laughs>
4: This one's well, going long, is... folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first American news coverage, or at least mainstream American news coverage, of the disco scene is widely believed to be a story that appeared in a September 1973 issue of Rolling Stone. In the piece, disco tech rock journalist Vince Aletti writes, "Parte, parte." He spells it out phonetically. You hear the chant at concerts. Rising like a tribal rallying cry on a shrill wave of whistles and hard-beaten tambourines. It's at once a call to get down and party. A statement that there's a party going on and an indication that discotheques, where the chant originated, are back in force. Discotheques never died. They just went back underground where the hardcore dance crowd was. Blacks, Latinos, gays. In the last year, they've returned not only as a rapidly spreading social phenomenon via juice bars, after-hours clubs, private lofts open on weekends to members only, but as a strong influence on the music people listen to and buy. It's a hell of a run-on sentence there. By the summer of 1974, the same year that Sol Makosa made the charts, Rock the Boat by Hughes Corporation, Top Billboard, mostly based off of club play. And then it was kicked off by another disco forerunner, George McRae's Rock Your Baby. Five years, almost to the day after the Stonewall riots, disco had gone mainstream. It was popular because, as Interview Magazine editor Bob Colacello would say, it had a strong, syncopated beat that everybody could move to, like your college professor said. You could make up your own steps and jump up and down like a child. It wasn't until 1977, with the world-beating success of the BG's Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and the accompanying film, that disco's reputation shifted and it became popularly known as the music of choice for straight, white, vaguely predatory males. So I think that had a lot of, you know, impact of what we think of as disco fans. Disco stew from The Simpsons, if you will. I love disco stew, though. (laughs) I mean, no, I didn't. But Studio 54, which opened that same year, went a long way towards bringing these sounds out of the underground clubs and into contact with the rich, famous and influential in a way that was slightly less damaging than, say, Saturday Night Fever. Long story short, back to Studio 54. Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager wanted their shot at the Disco Big Leagues in Manhattan. And in early 1977, they set their eyes on a former television studio at 254 West 54th Street. I think you know where I'm going with this. Wait, I'll put it together. (laughs) (laughs) This building had a long history of turning fantasy into reality. Built in 1927 as an opera theater, For the last 30 years, it had been a broadcast center for CBS radio and TV. Called Studio 52, it was the home of productions like What's My Line, The $64,000 Question, Password, To Tell the Truth, Beat the Clock, The Jack Benny Show, I've Got a Secret, and Captain Kangaroo. Yes, people were doing lines and having ejaculation contests, which we'll get to
5: later, <laughs> on the hollow ground where Captain Kangaroo gallivanted with Mr. Green Jeans. Did you know that, Heigel? The ejaculation contest? So the Mr. Kangaroo, Captain Kangaroo, excuse me, Captain, Captain, Captain Kangaroo. He served. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. That's
4: all pretty wild, <laughs> yeah. So, Studio 54 already had a uh, a storied pop cultural history before Disco. But CBS relocated its production base to California in the early 70s, and CBS put the building up for sale. Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, along with a silent partner, put up approximately $400,000. I've also heard as high as $700,000, which would have been in the area of 3 to $4 million in today's money. Still not a lot to buy the building. Their friends thought they were crazy. The building seemed far too big and the neighborhood was a disaster area. 54th Street and 8th Avenue was arguably the sleaziest neighborhood in the entire city, cramped with porno theaters and riddled with crime. They thought that there was no way that elite clientele would be caught dead there unless they were literally murdered, which in 1977 was possible. It's worth mentioning that this was full-on taxi driver era in New York when the city was teetering on the brink of bankruptcy and President Gerald Ford refused to bail out, leading to the infamous Daily News headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead. This was a time when getting mugged was as common as the trash on the ground, just a part of life in New York. Grown men would ask their cabbies to wait while they walked the 15 feet from the curb to the door of wherever they were going. An extremely popular car accessory around this time was something called a Benzie box, which allowed you to easily slide your radio out of your car at night when you parked on the street in an effort to prevent smashing grabs. All in
5: all, New York was Max Fisher from Rushmore Voice <laughs> in the sh- it is amazing to think of all this going on juxtaposed against like the grindhouse era when it was yeah. like the most sleazy horrific films that Quentin Tarantino would later wax nostalgic about <laughs> just like a couple blocks away. Oh yeah, like you could you could see it from the door of the club. It's insane. Mm. Greatest city
4: in the world, baby. Bing <laughs> Bong Yeah <go Mets. laughs> Steve and Ann Schrager, they had confidence in their vision, but they were also nervous considering this was the biggest project they'd ever undertaken. They put up an additional $500,000 in cash for a six-week crash construction job, which transformed Studio 52 into Studio 54. They wanted it open in springtime before the Manhattan elite to camp to the Hamptons for the summer. But they didn't wait for a building permit to come through, which was something of a theme with them when it came to dealing with bureaucratic paperwork. Hold that thought for later. As we'll discuss, Steve Rubell was more of the people person, handling guests and becoming the public face of Studio 54, while Ian Schrager was the creative producer, running operations behind the scenes. The vibes director, if you will. The vibes director, if you will, yes. Schrager would later say, when you have a nightclub, you have no product that's uniquely yours. You use the same music, the same liquor as everyone else. The only chance for distinction is the atmosphere, the ambiance. As you say, the vibes. The big names for nightclub lighting and architecture had been warned off working with Rubell and Schrager by the club's competitors. But this ended up working out for the best. Since the building had previously been a theater, they decided to hire people from a theatrical background. Who also worked at the speed of a theatrical production, which proved to be an added bonus because, you know, those guys move quickly. Schrager, who supervised the design, later said, Everyone who worked on Studio 54 had never worked on a nightclub before, except for the sound guy. This guaranteed a fresh approach. The lighting was by Jules Fisher and Paul Morantz, who'd done the Broadway show Chicago. It was their idea to take advantage of the theatrical rigs we had, so we could have moving and changing scenery. The sound was by Richard Long, who did most of the gay discos in town. We had huge bass speakers on the floors, so you could actually feel the music and tweeter arrays hanging from the ceiling the idea was to constantly assault the senses in an inspired stroke they turned the stage the former stage i should say into the dance floor because they reasoned everybody wants to be on the stage that's the key (laughs) to life in manhattan or anywhere else and they really leaned into using the infrastructure of the old theater They adapted the existing lighting rigging system to generate special effects like confetti, snow, fog, wind, and even raindrops.
5: (laughs) And later on, it wasn't rain. Oh. Oh. Oh.
4: (laughs) On the ceiling was a 30 by 40 foot cyclorama, which is like a curved screen, which could project images of space, volcano eruptions, sunrises, and sunsets. Volcanoes, if you were lucky. The whole idea was that you were part of a show and no other club was doing that. They wanted to break down the barrier between audience and performer and create the sense that anything could happen. And this theatrical assault to the senses made every other club seem mundane. But you can't have a disco club without a disco ball.
5: So disco balls actually date back to the early 1900s, which is amazing to me that like, People were having their minds blown by a train coming at them on a movie screen and, and the disco ball at the same time.
4: Well, it was like an early light show, yeah. basically. It was like a pre-laser light show.
5: Yeah, the first patent for, uh, was, was 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 prosaically uh, described as a myriad reflector filed <laughs> in uh, 1917 by L- Louis-Bernard Woest. Is he American? What is he? Looks German to me. Could be French. Louis-Bernard Voiced <laughs> who pledged to fill venues with dancing fireflies of a thousand hues now he has to be french he would yeah. not be german writing like that uh, <laughs> <laughs> these were staples of dance halls in the 20s and 30s and one can even be seen in a scene from casablanca and they were not cheap the average price of a 48 inch ball in the 1940s came to four grand or twenty thousand dollars in today's dollars That's insane. (laughs) You can get a new HVAC system for that if you buy it off the back of a truck. (laughs) As lighting and special effect technology improved in the 1960s, they came to be associated with more dowdy, low-budget, low-resource places, which is possibly how a disco ball came to be featured at David Mancuso's Loft parties. Loft DJ Nicky Siano barred the idea for his own proto-disco club, The Gallery, a few years later, and the trend took off. Uh, there are some random internet denizens claiming that there wasn't a disco ball at Studio 54. And while that may not have been the case when the club first opened, there are places that claim to have the Studio 54 disco ball. Collections of rich white people who own guitars, yeah. who own famous guitars. According to Architecture Digest, one is wound up in the sunroom of a private home in an Atlanta suburb. Uh Great. There's also a disco ball <laughs> hanging in the lobby of the current theater that occupies the building that used to house Studio 54. Uh, yeah, how many disco balls do you think they went through? I, I, I've i been looking at pictures of Studio 54 and I haven't actually been able to, like, see
4: any. Because mm. I presumably would have been very high up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I mean, how many disco balls? It's not like they they wear out. Well, maybe they, they do.
5: Well, why would they? You're shooting light at it i couldn't tell you what am i up? smoke s- smoke rising and maybe they dull it i mean actually that it. is probably the most likely thing that they just weren't able or willing to drop this thing down and scrub off all the nicotine the tar <laughs> that's gross mm. imagine mm. that
4: uh, no i mean that's that's one of the least gross things that they were
5: scrubbing off of the walls and surfaces nobody could get 54 oh, the walls yeah i was like nobody could get something that there there were contests there were contests as you meditate on that we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages
0: welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on rolling stones hugely popular influential and sometimes controversial list i'm Brittany spanos
1: and i'm rob sheffield we're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them.
5: We haven't even
4: gotten to the true insanity of... Although now now we're at opening night. So now we're going to start
5: getting to the true insanity of Studio 54. So some workers put in 30 hours straight, which I'm sure they did without the aid of any artificial stimulants, uh, to ensure that they were ready for opening night on April 26, 1977. It was quite literally down to the wire. 45 minutes before the doors opened, they were still laying down black astroturf. Wh- what? What? For the dance floor? For the... F- uh, mm, I don't... couldn't the, tell you. For the... F- for the... F-
4: alcoves? <laughs> I mean, possibly. F- colves?
5: Sex caves. Uh, uh, the grotto. Then the lights went out on the bar, so a poor runner was sent around to the corner bodega to get votive candles just before people were let in. <laughs> ah, bodegas and fire hazards. The true <laughs> New York... The true New York experience uh invites had been sent ushering the great and good of new york society to the premiere of studio 54 advising them that the dress code was spectacular (laughs) sure the invite included their famous 54 logo which came from the brain of time magazine graphic designer gil lesser who had also done the award-winning poster for the play Equus, famous for featuring full frontal male nudity and a horse.
4: Two things you will see a lot of at
5: Studio yeah. 54. The theme, they stayed on theme. Huh. Uh, they sent these to everyone that they wanted to be in a room <laughs> Chuck, with. Chuck! Chuck! It's your cousin! You know that new club you're thinking about? <laughs> it's your cousin, Gil Lesser. <laughs> Holding a naked man and a horse on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they sent these to everyone they wanted to be in a room with. Uh, Cher, uh, Margot Hemingway, brooke shields who would have been carry the two 12, 12. <laughs> uh god it is amazing that that woman didn't end up a bigger disaster i mean look what we did to f-ing, um linda blair Bearmore, linda blair and brooke shields was like the nation's disgusting wet dream before she could get her learner's permit uh <laughs> and then other ugly people like mel brooks john lithgow zero mostel jerry orbach john lithgow Lithgow and jerry orbach got an invite to the opening night of studio 54 george c scott can you imagine drunk (laughs) shaped like a barrel the belligerent george c scott Patton era yeah. yeah jerry stiller um Dustin Hoffman I can see Lee Strasberg there I can see Lily Tomlin there Joan Fontaine Tomlin yeah Joe Namath had swag though back in the day can you imagine Joe Namath rolling up in one of those fur coats is he Hollywood Joe there's another Joe football player Joe Montana never mind yeah I don't know I don't know football so well um one of the first people to appear outside of the doors of Studio 54 is someone who very few people would want to be in a room with these days (laughs) Donald Trump He and then-wife Ivanka were having dinner at the Upper East Side hotspot Elaine's, famously name-dropped in Billy Joel's Big Shot, when their friend, (laughs) socialite Nikki Haskell, suggested they check out this new club. As Haskell remembered in Anthony Halden Guest's book, The Last Party, which you describe as the definitive book on Studio 54. It's Christopher Guest's uh, brother, or half-brother or something, Anthony Hagen Guest. Huh. Yeah. Man, he should do a Studio 54 mockumentary. Oh! Oh man that's so good do they hate each other why haven't they done that anyway i I don't know yeah it's a great book the last part it's incredible what's the quote quote we got to studio 54 and there was nobody there we were like the first we knocked on the door donald hadn't built trump tower nobody knew him in those days their knocks went unanswered about 15 minutes later we were just getting ready to leave and they opened one of the doors they didn't even know we were waiting out there Once inside, Trump and company wandered through the empty disco. Haskell continues, They were still adjusting the lights and fixing the music. DJ Richie Kasker dropped the needle on the first record of the night, Devil's Gun by CJ and company. But the club remained dead. About a half an hour later, there were 50 or 60 people in there. We kept saying, gee, I wonder where everybody is. Sadly, there are no photos of Trump showing up unfashionably early to the opening of Studio 54, and his presence made little impression at the time. Studio 54 busboy Richie Notar recalled in a 2017 BBC radio documentary, no one remembered him being there the first night. He was a non-entity. He was never on the dance floor. Trump is famously a non-drinker, supposedly a reaction to his older brother who died of alcohol related complications he has claimed that he's never even had a beer although vice and numerous other outlets have published lengthy exposés featuring interviews with people who claim in fact the opposite regardless trump is known as not much of a party animal which makes it all the more surprising that he became something of a regular at studio which is what everybody in the know called it just shortening off the number wasn't studio 54 yes just studio I'd go there a lot with dates and with friends and with lots of people he told the Washington Post in 2016 he added to another outlet I would watch supermodels getting screwed well known supermodels getting screwed on a bench in the middle of the room there were seven of them and each one was getting screwed by a different guy his quotes distilled down into the page (laughs) it's
4: really really alarming (laughs) sure Uh, man
5: okay. okay man According to Trump's (laughs) friend Nikki Haskell Who led him there In the first place The non-drinking Non-dancing mogul Had business reasons For making the scene He understood It was an opportunity To be grabbed Ooh Phrasing Ooh Oh wow He was not there For the drug-fueled Disco deliria He was there to be seen With the famous people To network To cut the deal Whilst everyone else Cut the coke You think she Ripped that page Out of the typewriter (laughs) And was like Good job Nikki." Johnny Carson golf swing. Uh, Hack.
4: (laughs) But getting back to opening night. Though the first few hours were a little slow, the crowds quickly descended on the club in droves. The exterior of Studio 54 was lit up with Klieg lights like a movie premiere, but apparently no one had thought about the kind of public attention this would draw. (laughs) Without adequate security and bouncers outside, Rubell and Schrager had to take interior security guards out to work the front door. By 11 p.m., the crowd had gone from a trickle to a torrent of thousands, and traffic on 54th Street came to a standstill. Frank Sinatra was stranded in his limousine, unable to get near, but Cher, Margot Hemingway, and a young Brooke Shields made it inside. While Warren Beatty, Charlie's Angels star Kate Jackson, and Henry the Fonz Winkler did not, they were caught in the crowd. Another who was stranded outside was a physician who started distributing pills from his jumbo-sized bottle of Quaaludes. Yeah. As one club goer told Anthony Hayden guest, the doctor started handing them out. About 30 people standing around us took them. And then everybody started having this mad sexual orgy. Mm. All the men had their dicks out. Mm. Everybody was feeling everybody else. The crowd was moving in waves. Mm. All of a sudden, you would find yourself next to somebody you didn't know. Mm so that was going on outside that worked out well i mean i guess april and may in new york is pretty warm yeah but it's still in the in in literally in the middle of the street the middle of 54th street that's true (laughs) yeah Uh, i know it was 1977 and i know it was when that whole area was was a porn mecca but yeah that's a lot even
5: even for then Uh, god better days But those
4: who did find their way inside retreated to an unforgettable sight as they passed through the smoked glass doors. As doorman Mark Beneke would recall in the Studio 54 episode of VH1's Behind the Music, Beyond the Velvet Rope was what I used to call the Corridor of Joy. It had ornate chandeliers and everybody there was screaming with joy that they got in. You could hear the pulsating music as you walked through. The long entranceway was mirrored on both sides with a big chandelier in it, hit by lasers, which went onto the mirrors and bounced everywhere. The disco beat from beyond the hallway lured you further. Once inside the main room, you were invited to an enormous refreshment center. Poles lined with lights, almost like an amusement ride, came down just about eye level on the dance floor, and they were topped off with twirling police sirens. When you'd leave, they'd have little bowls of candy, like Tootsie Rolls, as you went out into the harsh morning light of the street. Studio opened at 10 p.m. and served liquor until 4, but never closed before 6 a.m. So, yeah, usually it was dawn when people uh, were done. Opening night featured a fashion show, circus acts reportedly, and a performance by the Alvin Ailey Dance Troupe. Mm -hmm. And the club scored a major coup with the New York Post the next day when they put a picture of Cher on their front page. Ann Trager recalled, I remember Steve calling me up that morning and we couldn't believe it. We were on the front page, the whole page. No nightclub up to then had done that. So they're off to a good start. This was April 26, 1977, but the next few days weren't quite as busy. And then club owner Steve Rubel got a call from the famous fashion designer Halston. He wanted to throw a birthday party for Bianca Jagger, Mick's wife at the time. It was to be a small affair. I've seen somewhere between 30 and 150 people, which that's a big spread. But still, it's not a lot. for It's a huge building. According to legends, Steve Rebell, who we'll learn, had a bit of an ego, initially told the world famous designer, we're closed on Mondays. <laughs> closed, he replied. Well, open it. This would prove to be a very good idea because the party yielded one of the most indelible images of Studio 54, which launched the club's reputation in a big way. I'm talking about, of course, Bianca Jagger on a horse. <laughs> we all have that image in our mind. You know the shot I'm talking oh, about. Of course. Yeah. As soon as Rubel got off the phone with Halston, the production team flipped into action, enlisting everyone they knew to blow up white balloons and call up the Claremont stables on the upper, I think upper west side and arrange for a horse to be delivered. (laughs) The big day arrived on May 2nd, barely a week after Studio 54 had opened. Everyone from Baryshnikov to Jacqueline Bessette was there. One of the bartenders, troublingly, donned a diaper and popped out of a cake for Bianca. But the highlight of the evening occurred around midnight when the DJ hit play on the Stones' Sympathy for the Devil, and the aforementioned White Steed was let out from behind the stage curtain, by a nude couple slathered in shivering paint and sparkles. They basically had like tuxedos painted on their naked bodies. If you were Bianca Jagger mm-hmm.
5: And someone played Sympathy for the Devil as your walk on music, would you take that the wrong way? I'm
4: trying to think of what other stone song would work better. Bitch. <laughs> it's, it's like said. it's like I, I knew that was coming and I set you up for it. <laughs> Incredible.
5: Tremendous. Um, under my thumb.
4: Channel was get what you want. Yeah. Jump, Jumpin' Jack Flash. Good old purpose. Rock up tempo song. I would have gone with that. Yeah. The horse was let out. Bianca <laughs> Jagger climbed the board, and then the horse was trotted across the dance floor while photographers went crazy.
5: I'm changing my text alert for you to the horse. <laughs> was let out
4: (laughs) (laughs) the photo of Bianca Jagger on the horse went viral before going viral was a thing however people of Mandela affected two points about this moment which are not strictly true one of them is that Bianca was naked on the horse which is probably a rumor that got started because the horse was in fact let out by a nude couple And also, there's a rumor that she actually rode the horse into the club from the street. Now, Bianca Jagger, who's done a lot of work for animal rights over the years, attempted to set the record straight in a 2015 letter to the Financial Times, who, for some reason, were covering this. (laughs) As an environmentalist and an animal rights defender, I find the insinuation that I would ride a horse into a nightclub offensive, she said. But regardless... This was one of the most effective publicity stunts in history, and photos of Bianca Jagger on horseback instantly appeared in newspapers all around the globe. Dorman Mark Beneke recalled in a 1998 E! documentary, It just snowballed from there. Studio opened on a Tuesday. The next couple nights weren't as busy, but then that picture started the ball rolling. It was that soon. So now we gotta talk about what it took to actually get into Studio 54, which was famously not easy to get into. It costs $12 on weeknights and $15 on weekends, which is about $50 in today's money. But as we all know, it took a hell of a lot more than just cash to get past the velvet ropes. Velvet ropes were actually put up originally because 8th Avenue and 54th Street was, as we mentioned earlier, a hub for sex workers. And they wanted to keep the prostitutes out. Rude. So that's why the velvet rope... Actually, one of the first places to have velvet ropes was, um, I think it was the Waldorf Astoria which was owned by John Jacob Astor, who died on the Titanic. I always have a Titanic fan. I
5: was going to say, if it was like that or the Beatles. Yeah.
4: Aside from the disco and the drugs, the most famous aspect of Studio 54 was the ultra-strict door policy. I find this hard to believe, but according to numerous sources i found, this was one of the first places that had a policy
5: that basically said, you can come in and you can't. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think we have to give it to like the racists of the world Oh no.
4: but there have been clubs that you needed a dress code there have been clubs that you needed to be a member there have been clubs White. where you had to pay a certain amount that's all something but studio 54 was based purely on vibes <laughs> and that was how they let you in
5: <laughs> uh, good for them
4: yeah steve Bell and ian schrager were well aware that the more you tell someone they can't have something the more they want it and that became the name of the game with studio 54 Rubel he viewed this as his nightly party, and the people he let in were his guests to the party. And as with any party, not everyone gets to be a guest. Rubel's partner, co-owner Ian Schrager, would explain, There was a kind of institutional resentment towards us, and it was really because of the door policy. The fact that people who were normally big shots or rich meant nothing at studio. They thought what we were doing was undemocratic, un-American, and elitist. But in reality, it wasn't elitist at all. We were just trying to exercise the same discretion you do when you have a private dinner party at your home. Create a good mix of people. And from the jump, Studio 54 was popular enough to be selective about who they let inside. And co-owner Steve Rubell ruled the velvet ropes with an iron fist. He could often be found outside of the club on a step stool, selecting members of the crowd for admittance personally, with a subjectivity that could be described as heartless, certainly rude and insulting.
5: Yeah, attire was very cruelly judged. There's footage of Rubel on his stool screaming at someone, don't you ever come in here with a hat. (laughs) He had a hatred of hats and also polyester. Polyester melts under the lights, he'd tell people. Go home and get a cotton shirt. And perhaps most terrifyingly, he would remember. There's a lot of footage out there of him screaming, didn't I tell you not to wear an outfit like that last time? You can't come in. Uh, he was judgy but also sort of hilarious when he would see a crowd of straight white guys dressed like john travolta in saturday night fever he'd announce barbecue house party to his <laughs> bouncers and bar their entry one night the doorman barred a guy who did look like a saturday night fever extra with gold chains the open neck shirt and huge hair the man stood there for half an hour and they finally realized that it was barry gibb of the Bee Gees, <laughs> aka one of the only people Who could get away with looking like that at Studio 54 in 1977? Rubel was also famous for splitting up couples. Uh, There are tons of stories of him just letting the guy or just the girl in, at which point the lucky one would shrug sorry (laughs) to their partner (laughs) and head inside. Overtly straight men entering alone were invariably denied entry to prevent uh, predatory behavior, which is nice. uh rubel certainly had a napoleon complex uh his behavior offered veered into the sadistic he would tell women that he'd let them into the club if they would take off all their clothes which is admittedly a weird move for a gay man some complied and in winter this resulted in at least one woman going to the hospital for frostbitten nipples tweet at us using the hashtag He had a particular hatred for what he called bridge and tunnel people, or Brooklyn and New Jersey residents who traveled into Manhattan on weekends for a big night out. And in his eyes, these hayseeds from the outer boroughs were unsophisticated, tacky, and deserving of unrelenting scorn. Once, one of the bartenders arrived with friends from out of town. Steve greeted the bartender warmly before seeing his entourage. Then his face fell and he started screaming, No way! No way! He eventually relented, but not before dragging the bartender aside and hissing, Don't you ever do this to me again. (laughs) There's footage of him saying to some guy out front, Hey, it doesn't matter that you're nice. My cousin's nice. I love her, but that doesn't matter. She's not coming in here. And admirably, he held himself to the same standard. He would regularly admit that if he didn't own the place, there's no way that he would have been let inside. With all of this, the vibe outside the club was a strange mix of glamour and desperation which Anthony Hayden Guest described as looking like the damned outside of hell. (laughs) Rubel judged the crowd based on his ever changing definition of the right stuff. He viewed himself as a casting director who was casting a show and the scene outside was the audition. Rubel determined that diversity was key to creating a vibrant combustible atmosphere. As a result, the scene was totally integrated in a way that was rare for the late 70s. He thought that if any one group was too out of proportion, too many men, too many women, too many couples, too many straights, too many gays, too black, too young, too old, etc., it would put damper on the evening. He used to say, it's like mixing a salad. (coughs) Hold for applause. (laughs) If it gets too straight, then there's not enough energy in the room. If it gets too gay, then there's no glamour. We want it to be bisexual. Very, very, very bisexual. That was a salad tossing (laughs) joke that we were making there earlier. Thanks, Ted. That is the joke. They were essentially inverting the established power structures. Uh, Rubel would banish the suit wearing swingers, but then let their limo drivers in. Great, great (laughs) stuff. One Halloween, two women, perhaps recalling the famous Bianca Jagger photo, took out a $500 loan to rent a horse which they rode nude to the velvet ropes as twin lady godivas the horse was then granted entry and the women were not (laughs) that's incredible on any given night a kid who worked at mcdonald's would share a couch with a supermodel the writer paul goldberger has a great quote about this from a preface to a studio 54 coffee table book the club was viewed as a place of exclusion which made it an unnatural symbol for an age of inclusion But Studio 54's velvet rope, in the end, was far less important than the connection the club made between the intense, explosive dance culture of downtown New York and the older culture of uptown New York. And by doing this, it broke more barriers than it created. It was where the notion of the outsider and the notion of the insider blended so completely that you could no longer tell the difference between them. I think that's cool. Yeah. Dressing outlandishly was an easy way to guarantee entry. Once, a woman came out of a limo with green and purple hair wearing a rubber suit, dragging two plastic dogs behind her, and she got in. Club staple Grace Jones, who was a -a once-in-a-lifetime icon, uh, once-in-generation, I should say, uh, had to fend off desperate plebs who would literally cling to her outfit and scream, tell them I'm with you. On more than one occasion, she would enter basically naked. Which she could do because she was a statuesque individual. Uh, Have you seen the Conan movie she's in? No. That was the sequel. Great, great stuff. Rubel, I'm sure you've you've seen her in the Bond movie, right? With Walken? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pull up to the bumper, baby. (laughs) Uh, Rubel's chief crowd control lieutenant was doorman Mark Benecke. So chosen because he was the best looking member of the security staff. Though he was only 19, the club's owners made him unbribable by paying him more than anyone else. Even so, that didn't stop some desperate hopeful from shoving their hands into his coat pocket to deposit cash or drugs. And, needless to say, being a 19-year-old in a position of almost unlimited social cachet made him a little (laughs) bit of a punk. Just like Rubel. Naturally, people tried good old-fashioned bribery, but that didn't work, he'd later say. Then I'd say to them they should go and buy the exact same jacket I was wearing. Forgive me, but I was only a teen at the time. And they'd go to Bloomingdale's and buy it, and they still wouldn't get in. (laughs) He was in charge of adhering to the guest list at the front door. Next to the names were notes like pay, comp, or NFU for no f*** up. What does that mean? That they wouldn't, they would be, they were... Not allowed to no, me, fucked No, me, it me, meant like,
4: do, like basically like ultra VIP. Like, do anything they say. Oh, do not screw this up.
5: okay, okay, okay. Those blacklisted had their names under the no goods column. As we'll discover when we talk about their tax fraud, Studio 54's record books were not difficult to decipher. Part of Mark Benecke's role as the doorman also meant that he was in charge of managing the entourages of those on the guest list. As with everything in relation to fame, there was a hierarchy. A movie star could bring unlimited guests, a prince or princess could invite five or six guests, counts and countesses four, most other (laughs) VIPs three, and so on. Other rules were more or less unwritten. For example, Mick and Keith of the Rolling Stones were comped, but the other Rolling Stones had to pay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um... (laughs) Do you think that was just the rule for rock bands in general? Like guitarists and frontman get in, but bassist yeah, and drummer have to pay. Keith,
1: mean, Moon, no. Keith, Keith, Moon have to. Keith Moon, no,
5: Keith Moon didn't Paul McCartney. Keith Moon didn't have yeah. to. I Paul McCartney. God, Paul John Mc- McVie didn't have to. Paul McCartney at Studio Fifty Four. Uh, yeah, actually, of all the names
4: that I have found who attended Studio Fifty Four, Paul McCartney was one I have not seen. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Him with his thumbs up, just that's <laughs> yeah,
5: <laughs> like a tugboat T-shirt. The Rupert the Bear T-shirt. Among those who were excluded at one time or another were Frank Sinatra, Roberta Flack, Ooh. and several Ooh. young Kennedys. Uh, that's yeah. fine. Boston, the president of Cyprus was once rejected because the doorman thought he was the president of New York City's Cypress Hills Cemetery. <laughs> That's what you get when you put a put a 19-year-old a in charge of the door. Uh, <laughs> when the son of King Khalid of Saudi Arabia was rejected, the Saudi embassy to the United States wrote Rubella a letter asking that he not be rejected again. No word on the outcome, but it would indeed be more hilarious if he was <laughs> summarily ejected again. <laughs> um, and for some reason, Cher was also once rejected. She reportedly said to the doorman, I'm Cher to which he said i know <laughs> i i have a hard time running that one down i have a hard time believing that one yeah i mean she's like the most one of the most striking women alive and dressed by bob mackey like i don't that's insane
4: yeah i there must be i've seen that appear on numerous sites and numerous outlets so i don't know there must be some truth to it maybe she was just delayed i don't know It goes without saying that some wannabes took this rejection poorly. To prepare for any malcontents, Studio 54 employees were tasked with removing bottles, cans, and any convenient projectiles from nearby trash bins. (laughs) Doorman Mark Benecke often required an escort back to his apartment at the end of the night. At times it got really hairy outside, he told Anthony Hayden Guest. Once, a regular customer had too many people or some problem. I walked him back to his limo. And all of a sudden, the guy starts choking me. Another time, a car mounted the sidewalk and threatened to run down anyone unlucky enough to be guarding the velvet ropes. Security Chief Chuck Grawlick recalled to Hayden Guest, A car was by. Someone yelled out, Hey, asshole! I looked, and there was a rifle pointed at me. And I kind of let that slide, because he didn't shoot. (laughs) The bar was very low in 1977,
5: New York. (laughs)
4: But then, another morning, he wasn't so lucky, and someone did pull the trigger. We walked through the entrance where the garbage goes out. It was closer, meaning the end of the night, and we were dead. The next thing we knew, these guys were out of a car across the street. They'd been waiting, and they just started shooting above our heads. Chips of brick flew down. We dived onto the ground. I personally try to get very friendly with the underside of a car. But some people were not deterred at the front door. Steve Rubell turned them down, they tried gate crashing. Some climbed under the building next door, some 11 stories, and tried to find a way in from the roof. Mark Beneke claimed that one entrepreneurial soul sold maps that allegedly showed how to get into Studio 54 through subway tunnels. I can't believe that's true. Uh, In one legendary story told by many people, including chic guitarist Nile Rodgers... Club goers noticed a terrible smell coming from the vent. For days, they assumed it was a dead mouse. But upon investigation, it was revealed to be a tuxedo-clad reveler who would tried to break into Studio 54 through the ventilation system. Apparently, he got stuck and froze to death, or so the story goes. Steve Rubell's assistant had never heard this story, so maybe it was a myth. But Studio 54 co-owner Ian Schrager confirmed it years later,
5: so your mileage may vary. At least one fatality attributed to Studio 54.
6: No, that that
5: that's good. That that tracks. Yeah. yeah. That's a good track record.
4: Uh regardless, Studio 54 took pride in their reputation as discerning hosts. When they launched a the brand of Studio 54 jeans, they opted for the slogan, Now everyone can get into Studio fifty-four. <laughs> I like that. Naturally, a huge part of the draw of Studio 54 were the celebrities. The regular presence of famous people at Studio 54 was deemed absolutely critical. This was the beginning of the age of the celebrity, as defined by people who are famous for being famous. And as such, they would be put on the front page of papers for no particular reason. Remember, People magazine had been founded three years before, and its competitor, Us Weekly, began publication the very week Studio 54 opened. Ian Schrager later said, There was this paradigm shift away from reading about crime and sports heroes. People became fascinated with celebrities. We were there at the right time and we wrote it for all it was worth. And celebrities like Studio 54 because all photos taken inside by photographers had to be approved by Steve Rubell personally before being sent to outlets for publication, so they felt reasonably protected. Except there was a time when Canadian First Lady Margaret Trudeau, Justin's mom, uh, was photographed without underwear, and that was circulated. So, that's <laughs> weird.
5: Don't know how that got out. We should tweet that at him. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> to ensure a suitably
4: star-studded evening on their premises, Steve Rubell and Ann Schrager drew on the guest book of legendary party promoter Carmen D'Alessio. And then later, they also employed a publicist named Joanna Horowitz to essentially act as celebrity wrangler, getting famous people to Studio 54 nightly and making sure that photos of them wound up in the news. Her payment structure illustrated the hierarchy of the New York gossip rags. Horowitz would be paid $500 for landing a photo of a celebrity at studio on the cover of the Daily News, $1,000 for a cover of the New York Post, and just $150 for a photo in the New York Post page 6 section. Ooh. She also had a sliding scale when it came to which stars she secured for studio. She told New York Magazine in 2007, everybody was a different price. Once in a while Ian and I would argue because I thought Alice Cooper $60 was worth more than Sylvester Stallone $80, but Ian thought no. Going over the rates even more. The presence of Suzanne Summers and her TV producer husband, Alan Hamill, earned Horowitz $100, rock singer Peter Frampton earned her $50, and TV host Dick Clark entering the club only earned her $30. <laughs> Brutal. All of it. Uh, as a point of fact, Horowitz would later go on to work as Kevin Spacey's full-time manager for 28 years until he fired her in 2017 around the time he was making the aforementioned film All the Money in the World about the John Paul Getty ransom ear-slicing thing before he was cut in the wake of a sex abuse scandal
5: and replaced by Christopher Plummer.
4: So f*** her. He fired her. (laughs) Uh, Well said. (laughs) And now let's get to the cavalcade of stars. The storied social scene of Studio 54 is the stuff of legend. You'd have Elizabeth Taylor, Andy Warhol, Betty Ford, and designer Halston all sitting
5: next to each other on a couch. Was this Betty Ford when she was cool or not? This is pre-Betty Ford, Betty Ford. Oh, so, okay. So when she partied. I think so. Cool.
4: Just a quick roll call of the regulars who were often photographed at Studio 54 include... Deep breath. Calvin Klein, Truman Capote, Liza Minnelli, Robert Mapplethorpe, Elizabeth Taylor, Andy Warhol, Frank Sinatra, Diana Ross, Steven Tyler, Michael Jackson, Dolly Parton, Sylvester Stallone, Donna Summers, Grace Jones, Robert De Niro, Farrah Fawcett, Woody Allen, John Belushi, Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein. <laughs> uh, Divine, Faye Dunaway, the coffee heiress, Doris Duke, Tom Ford, Diane von Furstberg, Martha Graham, Richard Gere. Borisnikov, Christopher Reeve, Elton John, Debbie Harry, Angelica Houston, Tommy Hilfiger, Margo Hemingway, Rod Stewart, Rick James, Caitlin Jenner, Tom Jones, Carl Lagerfeld, Bette Midler, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, Muhammad Ali, hmm. Paul Newman, Clive Davis, Michael Caine. They must have had a field day with his name. Because it sounds
5: like my cocaine.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suzanne Summers, George Hamilton, Fleetwood Mac, David Geffen, Sidney Poitier, Gregory Peck. Bruce Springsteen, Richard Pryor, Gilda Radner, Lou Reed, Geraldo Rivera, John Travolta, Tina Turner, Robin Williams, Paul Simon, Dan Vreelands, Fran Lebowitz, John McEnroe, Bianca Jagger, Magic
5: Johnson. John McEnroe? <laughs> Little tennis runt with a seemed, maniacal rage problem. I was like, he seemed kind of tweaked. I mean, that that rage probably came from something. Mm. God, I would have loved to be. I would have loved to be there with Fran Leibowitz. just like surly <laughs> and ripping on everyone.
4: Tennessee Williams, Yves Saint Laurent, John Collins, George Plimpton, Omar Sharif, Alice Cooper, John Voigt, Eartha Kitt, Yul Brenner, Pele, O.J. Simpson, ooh, Rupert Murdoch. Who's worse? Jimmy Carter's mother, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> we got her in there. Chevy Chase, Jack Lemon, Shelley Duvall.
2: Hello, I'm Shelly Duvall.
4: Cary Grant, Barbara Streisand, Coretta Scott King, Jackie O, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ryan O'Neal, Givenchy, Gloria Swanson, Walter, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite. <laughs> Joe Namath, Salvador Dali, the aforementioned Margaret Trudeau, Cher, David Bowie. Freddie Mercury, and the rest. (laughs) Actually, one more, especially for Heigl. Actress Sylvia Miles, who got her role in the Toby
5: Hooper slasher, The Funhouse, after bumping into Toby at Studio Fifty Four. Wow, Toby Hooper, that's really funny. Like he would have made Texas Chainsaw Massacre at that point. (laughs) Yeah, and everybody,
4: everybody was. No, but it's just
5: so funny that like this disgusting grindhouse movie would have gotten him in. I mean, it's not... It, anyway, that's amazing. Good for good for Toby. Uh,
4: other regulars are perhaps more surprising. Mark Benneke, the doorman, recalls classical pianist Vladimir Horowitz turning up regularly with his wife, Wanda. He always wore earplugs. He hated the music, but loved watching the people. A Vanity Fair retrospective from 1996 offered this evocative description of the scene. On any night at Studio 54, one could find Diana Ross, Fran Lebowitz and Farrah Fawcett on the dance floor, John McElroy, Ili Naste, I don't know who that is, and Cheryl Teagues at the bar, Lynn Wyatt, Sioux Schoenberger, and Kenny J. Lane on the Bay Cat. don't know who any of those people are, Barry Diller, Calvin Klein, and David Geffen against the back wall, <laughs> Rod Stewart, Peter Frampton, and Ryan O'Neill up on the balcony, Peter Beard in the ladies' room, Debbie Harry in the men's room, and a teenage Michael Jackson in the DJ booth playing with the lights and sound. (laughs) The journalist Beauregard Houston Montgomery, incredible name, later said of the scene, it was so exciting, I sometimes had to take a tranquilizer. (laughs) Same, dude. (laughs) You saw so many celebrities. The code was, you didn't speak to them, but very often they spoke to you. I don't think any stalkers got into 54. 54. Steve Rubell was the stalker. That was the unwritten rule at Studio 54, was that you never asked anybody to dance. You could get up and dance, and you might end up dancing next to Catherine Deneuve or Truman Capote, but you had to play it cool. Andy Warhol would say that the club was a dictatorship at the door, but a democracy inside. Part of the magic of Studio 54 was that it made normal people feel like
5: stars, and stars feel like normal people. Normal people, though... May have been something of an exaggeration. Yeah. yeah. Assorted eccentrics, who guaranteed the aforementioned Fellini-esque vibes, also made the scene, including uh, people wearing nothing but leather straps or a wedding veil. Uh, Others would recall a couple who would often come in. uh, The woman would be naked, and the guy was dressed like Abraham Lincoln, and their bit was that he would follow her around with a flashlight pointing at various parts of her body. Probably not the back of her head, though, right? (laughs) One regular was an individual known only as Rollerina, who uh, was affectionately known as the fairy godmother of Studio 54. Rollerina was a man in a wedding dress and roller skates who would roll down Broadway and straight into the club. By day, he was a Wall Street stockbroker. And a friend who knew him would later say, he used to hide his costumes in different nooks and crannies in the cities because there was no way that he could change, especially in those days, from his job on Wall Street. He was like Superman, hiding and putting on his costume in a phone booth. And then, of course there's Disco Sally. A contemporary New York magazine article paints a vivid portrait. A tiny 77-year-old lawyer named Sally Lipman was mourning the death of her husband when she happened upon the disco scene and it changed her life. Dressed in tight pants and high-top sneakers, she became Disco Sally, a star at Studio 54 who draw an audience of adoring fans as she got down on the dance floor. Many would recall her dancing, usually with little to no clothes, with leather trucker dudes getting bodily passed around the crowd to her immense delight. (laughs) And she was there almost every night. Club manager Mark Fleischman would describe her in his memoir Inside Studio 54 as a sprightly thing in her late 70s who danced like a 30-year-old and was accompanied by a handsome young man named John on her arm. She was a retired Jewish lawyer who became a judge and suddenly went crazy due to the combination of cocaine and the Studio 54 effect. But back in the day, she would dance nonstop from midnight to 5 a.m., many nights a week, taking only bathroom and cocaine breaks. She was there so often that she became close to the staff and often invited them back to her apartment for dinner. As Studio 54 manager Scott Bitterman said, Sally represented the best of the club for me. She was neither rich nor famous. She was a woman who loved to dance and have fun with her friends in the evening. Aww. Aww. The other stars of the scene were the DJs at Studio 54. <laughs> the DJ booth was one of the inner sanctums of the club. Sorry. Old man yells at club. The DJ booth was one of the inner sanctums of the club, high up above the dance floor and lit so it could be seen from all vantage points. VIPs would be invited up to intro and sometimes even select records. They even released a record called A Night at Studio 54, which was a medley of disco songs mixed live at the club. Needless to say, it instantly went gold. The DJs were very, very important at that time because they were crucial in breaking songs by trying them out at these nightly raves. As a hilarious Dan Rather hosted 60 Minutes segment from 1978 attests, songs could make hundreds of thousands of dollars thanks to club popularity without requiring airplay. Case in point, I will survive, which was actually a B-side for Gloria Gaynor before Studio 54 DJ Richie Caxker. Caxor. Case in point, Steady. I will survive. <laughs> Steady. Case in point, I will survive, which was a B-side for Gloria Gaynor before Studio 54 DJ Richie Caxer began playing it at the club. After it was a hit on the dance floor, he used his clout to get it played on the radio. This helped turn disco into a $4 billion a year industry. Side note, did any of you know that Gloria Gaynor recorded I Will Survive after she broke her back during a mid-concert fall and had to relearn how to walk? It was not an anthem about recovering from heartbreak. She was literally in physical agony. Did you know that? I didn't, actually. Mm. Uh, She recorded the vocals in a back brace which she credits for helping her sing with such conviction. Truly a legend. I Will Survive is far from the only disco standard that took off thanks to the folks of Studio 54. Uh, This is one of my favorites. In fact, their draconian door policy inspired Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards to compose a smash for their band Chic. It began on New Year's Eve 1977. When Nile and Bernie found themselves unable to get past the front door at studio, despite the fact that their songs were probably being played at that very moment inside. Rogers told Sound on Sound in 2005, we were invited to meet with Grace Jones at Studio 54. She wanted to interview us about recording her next album. At the time, our music was fairly popular. Dance, Dance, Dance was a big hit, but Grace didn't leave our name at the door, and the doorman wouldn't let us in. They just waited around until the early morning hours. We stood there as long as we could take it, until our feet were finally just way too cold. We were totally dejected. We felt horrible. However, if it's any late-breaking consolation to them, Henry Winkler, the Fonz, was also turned away that night.
4: <laughs> he didn't
5: get into the opening night either. God, Fonz, no love for the Fonz. Yes, it would be great if, if if he ended up hanging out with with Mara Rogers and and, uh, and Bernard Edwards and wound up co with a co-write. <laughs> hey.
4: Or even better, if he made it inside and ended up producing Grace Jones' next album.
5: Yes, actually. Bernard Edwards and Nile Rogers then headed back to Nile's apartment, which was just a few blocks away. He picked up the story in an interview with Anthony Hayden Guest, saying, We grabbed a couple of bottles of champagne from the corner liquor store and then went back to my place, plugged in our instruments, and started jamming. We were just yelling obscenities. F*** Studio 54. Fuck. F- off. F- those scumbags. Fuck. <laughs> and we were laughing. We were entertaining the hell out of ourselves. We had a blast. And finally it hit Bernard. He said... Hey, Niall, what you're playing sounds really good. And within half an hour, they composed a song called F*** Off. (laughs) After some lyrical tweaking, they arrived at the slightly more top-friendly title. First, we changed it from F*** Off to Freak Off, and that was pretty hideous. Then all of a sudden, it just hit me. One second, the light bulb went off, and I sang, Ah, Freak out." (laughs) Nice. Released as... Le Freak, in September of 1978, the song would become Sheik's first number one and biggest hit. Perhaps understandably, Nile Rogers now considers Mark Beneke, the Studio 54 doorman who would not let them in, a friend. I love that. I love that story. Yeah, it's great. I just, uh, yeah, uh, man. They should have stuck with F*** Off, though.
4: <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
4: in addition to the DJs and the doorman, the studio 54 staff was notable for its fleet of shirtless and short, short clad busboys and bartenders. This was not strictly by design, at least at first, uh, hilariously, the first bartender who took off his shirt was this, uh, self-described scrawny guy from Queens named Scotty Taylor. And he was just hot and sweaty and figured no one would care or even notice since the customers were mostly half naked and he took off his shirt. Club owner, Steve did notice he came over and said, Scotty, that's great. I love that. Put your shirt back on. Then, looking at Scotty's more handsome and muscular co workers, he said, You other guys, take your shirts off. <laughs> like to pause and briefly observe how messed up this was since the 18 to 21 year old busboys were the most vulnerable on staff and they were basically being used as playthings for the likes of Freddie Mercury and allegedly a famous fashion designer known for his boxer shorts. Uh, Watching a documentary on Studio 54 taught me what the phrase around the world meant in certain circles. Did Daft Punk song? (laughs) This was in the brief window between the advent of birth control and the AIDS epidemic when sex was more or less seen as without consequences. STDs were easily treatable. There was basically nothing you couldn't cure without a shot. A pickup line at Studio 54 was basically, according to several, Hi, you look real, real nice. I'm sure I'm sure said in a different way. Rogers, yeah. <laughs> David Lynch. Yeah. At, at wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, Nile Rogers, who presumably was back in Studio 54's good graces after penning Lafreque, said in a nineteen ninety-eight ITV documentary, sex in the bathroom was one of the most common things in those days. I felt like I didn't have a good time if I didn't have sex in a semi public place. I feel like that's not true, but okay. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
4: Niall, there's so <laughs> many other ways to have a good time. Or at least maybe it wasn't as common as he's making it seem, but okay. I wa- I, you know what? I wasn't there. Mm. There's a great quote about the Studio 54 bathrooms from Judith Licht in a 2020 New York Times oral history. Before there was LGBTQ, There were bathrooms at Studio 54. You had no idea what anybody was. (laughs) Hmm. People also had sex in the upstairs balconies where you could Mm. get busy watching thousands dance down below. This area was upholstered in rubber because it was deemed easy to hose down in the morning. That was the stated objective by the architects. Grace Mm. Jones wrote in her memoir, Up high in the seats above the stalls, you could disappear into the shadows and get up to whatever. Up above the balcony, there was the rubber room with thick rubber walls that could be easily wiped down after all the powdery activity that went on. There was even something above the rubber room, beyond secretive, up where the gods of the club could engage in their chosen vice, high up above the relentless dancers. It was a place of secrets and secretions. The in-crowd, the Ah! Ah! (laughs) in-crowd... Ah, the in crowd and inhalations sucking and snorting man don't ever say that to me again grace jones said it to you that's true would it have been easier to take coming from her as a it would have uh, actually been it's an audiobook yeah yeah Yeah. i'm sorry sorry to hear that from me uh i'm really sorry from what you're about to hear from me on a related note in what i can't believe you left me with this I, I, I thought you would have just taken them team and been the, been the one to share the story. Read but it. In what must surely be one of the grossest stories we've ever told on this show, club owner Steve Rubell once held an ejaculation contest with his bar mm. boys. The one who ejaculated the furthest was invited to Barbados with him. Furthest or most? I think it was like a long jump.
5: Hmm. Vertical or horizontal? Horizontal. Hmm.
4: I imagine. I, I'm. I'm assuming. One of the well, presumably. I. I don't. I don't know if he was involved in this contest, but one of the bar boys was Alec Baldwin.
5: <laughs> <laughs> From the pub. Later, be involved <laughs> in a different shooting incident. Oh. <laughs> oh man! He walked into that one and I... a few other things at Studio Fifty Four. <laughs> oh, oh, your boys on it. I'm cooking. <laughs> He spent two months working
4: as a he spent two months. He spent two months working as a busboy at Studio 54 in the fall of 1979. And he recalled the scene in the balcony when speaking to Interview Magazine in 2012. Gay men would go up to the balcony and fondle one another. It's just like the Jack Donahue voice. Usually couples, very distinguished, wealthy, well dressed. Well-heeled gay men would go up to the balcony and quote, discuss things. They'd ask your boy here to go downstairs and quote unquote fetch them a pack of cigarettes. Cigarettes at Studio 54 were probably like $8, and they'd say, well, keep the change. I was a very popular cigarette snatcher in the balcony. I was the Rick Blaine of Well-Heeled Homosexual Balcony Dwellers at Studio 54. Not a very <laughs> efficient way to tell that story, Alec, but thank you. <laughs> <For> f- ass- <laughs> <laughs> so that's the ba- so that's the balcony, and the balcony was more or less open to anyone, but the ultra-exclusive enclave for decadence and depravity at Studio 54 was the infamous basement, accessible only by a hidden stairway. Also known as the playroom, this cavernous area was very much a basement in the truest sense. It was grungy, graffitied, and unglamorous, decorated with old party decorations, pillars of rolled carpet, damaged banquettes, and... Troublingly, a children's playground swing set and kiddie pool filled with beach balls. Mm, yeah. Mattresses were thrown onto concrete floors in secluded corners where extra special guests could have a moment alone with the busboy of their choice. God, it's like the Fritzl's basement or something. <laughs> Rubel once arranged for a well known countess to have a basement rendezvous with a bartender she fancied. The barman handcuffed the countess at her request and then promptly forgot about her. <laughs> Hours went by before Rebel realized she was missing and rescued her from the basement. <laughs> as gross as it was, celebrities knew that they weren't going to be bothered or, more importantly, photographed in the basement, and few photos of it exist. Security men brandishing walkie-talkies secretly patrolled the area, removing any uninvited gawkers. Grace Jones wrote in her 2016 memoir, Celebrities headed for the basement getting high down low. Not even those who got inside the club could all make it into the basement. You'd stumble into half-hidden rooms filled with a few people who seemed to be sweating because of something they had just done or were about to do. Needless to say, many drugs were consumed, uh, even more blatantly than they were upstairs. I've read reports of basement VIPs entertaining themselves with strawberries dipped in cocaine, which seems to make no sense whatsoever, because no. I don't think you you get high that way and it tastes bad. But yeah, you've, apparently, ruined, you've ruined two things. There's two things, two things that are important to both of us. <laughs> but apparently the story is legit. The Soviet ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev came across this scene and helped himself to one of these strawberries dipped in cocaine, apparently thinking the white powder was powdered sugar. Oh, sweet he then boy. he then spat it out and called security, believing that they were trying to poison him.
5: The 70s could sometimes be the dumbest decade. (laughs) Perfect segue to getting into one of the most famous details. We're getting into drugs. (laughs) Folks, cocaine. Uh, We've gone this far talking in detail about Studio 54 without talking about the famous moon with the spoon. Huge light display depicting a crescent moon snorting coke. Waxing gibbous? Waning gibbous? (laughs) I don't know what any of that means. Uh, this was essentially the god of Studio 54, and it would ceremoniously be lowered over the dance floor several times an evening, where at which point people would literally get on their knees and bow. It's difficult in 2024 to understand the casual nature with which cocaine was consumed at the time. It was taken as a fact that it was non-addictive, with one Studio 54 regular proclaiming, It was written in the newspaper! That's not far off, though. Uh, cocaine implements, quote-unquote, tools were advertised in magazines. These range from small silver spoons that hung around your neck, 22-karat gold razor blades, the Gasper snow injector advertised with the slogan, do it orally. <laughs> Nasally? Is that what they mean? What What is a snow injector? I'm going to look this up. I think it, it gets more up your nose faster. Hmm. Wait, I'm going to f- hang on a sec. Uh, and even mirrors, where the ad copy read, Tonight's forecast, snow. There is a high front bringing snow to much of the nation tonight. Light to heavy accumulation is expected. We urge our viewers to prepare for this high front with quality mirrors from EasyLine. Pre-cut grooves, beveled edges, and a cork backing are just a few reasons why these mirrors are so popular. Hurry to your neighborhood head shop before the supply runs out.
4: I just oh, sent man. you the uh,
5: the um, snow injector. Oh, okay, that's what it. Bulb model and pocket. Oh, and it of looks course, like a turkey baster. The natives of South America used hollow reeds to blow the powder down each other's throat. Of course, of course, they somehow managed to drag that in.
4: <laughs> oh boy! This method put the snow more directly into the lungs and did not damage delicate nasal and sinus membranes. So you could
5: just blow cocaine right down your throat. Good Lord. All of this to say, offering someone a line or bump was on par with offering them a cup of coffee or a Red Bull uh, or a, a toot of their vape. Um, hmm. Sure, it was expensive, but for people who were in New York's main industries, finance, fashion, entertainment, and so forth, it was considered normal. For Christmas, the Studio 54 owners put together gift baggies of cocaine that were handed out by Santa. There's a photo of a very excited Robin Williams grabbing one. <laughs> there was even a guy on staff, Lenny54, whose sole job appeared to just be doing drugs along with the VIPs. It's like the Mighty Mighty Bostones had a guy on stage for like 20 years whose whole thing was just really <laughs> dancing. They had a guy whose on the payroll's job was just to do cocaine. Uh, cocaine. Was Lenny plight- Bostone. Lenny Bostone. Please, call me Lenny. My father was Mr. 54. Uh, Cocaine was quite literally part of the currency at Studio 54, as patrons would tip bartenders in vials of Coke. Uh, And just like cash, they would throw all of the vials into a bucket and divvy them up among staff at the end of the night. Cocaine tended to breed generosity or egregious waste. It was not uncommon for someone to use a $100 bill to snort cocaine and then just throw it on the ground like a candy wrapper. (laughs) And then someone else would grab the $100 bill on the floor, use it to do lines themselves, and throw it away again. While coke may have been the drug of choice, it was far from the only illicit substance being consumed at Studio 54. There are legendary and therefore possibly mythical stories of revelers putting uh, amyl nitrate poppers in the AC ducts and telling the DJ to play fast songs. An occupational hazard for the cloakroom staff was accidental contact highs due to the poppers that would occasionally explode after being left in people's coats. (laughs) sometimes the stars would actually hang out in the coat room to relax a little bit the the chill tent if you will (laughs) uh and then the coat check woman would also would then go out and hang in the club themselves and then come back reporting on all the gossip that they'd picked up and then of course were quaaludes the uh horrifically and pretty much always abused downers uh painkiller and sleep aid known as disco biscuits before they were outlawed by the fda in 1982 you may perhaps horrifically remember bill cosby referring to them as thigh openers or was that oh was that uh was that uh hugh hefner i think it was hugh hefner actually oh god i've never heard that yeah quaaludes were a favorite of co-owner steve rubell who often overindulged on the dance floor club goer Nikki haskell offers this vivid description He'd be at the bar drinking his Coca-Cola with about ten straws. You could always see when he had a couple of Quaaludes, because he'd slightly foam at the mouth. It was a look. (laughs) But enough about the drugs. Let's talk about the themed parties. (laughs) The most Jordan sentence
4: ever. (laughs) Stewie's sexy party theme here. (laughs)
5: Uh, rubert and schrager would throw themed parties tackling them with an over-the-top intensity that could only have been fueled by cocaine they came from a competitive background out in brooklyn uh where as one of their friends observed the prevailing mentality was my bar mitzvah is going to be better than your bar mitzvah (laughs) once a month they (laughs) add cocaine and there you go (laughs) yeah exactly once a month they would draw on the broadway expertise of their staff and transform the venue into a fantastic stage set for one night only they would frequently drop between 40 and 50 grand for these productions, but as far as Eden Schrager and Steve Rubell were concerned, this was a valuable marketing tool for the club. These parties helped create the reputation that anything could happen at Studio, blurred the line between patrons and performers. If the dance floor was literally the stage, then the building itself became a soundstage on which the club owners created their wildest fantasies. Once they transformed the space into Louis XIV's castle, with 20 violin players and white tails lining the entry hallway. For their first anniversary in April 1978, they threw a circus-themed celebration with giraffes and a marching band that played Happy Birthday. There was another circus-themed party later on for the fashion designer Valentino that featured a circus ring with sand and mermaids on trapezes, hastily arranged in just three days. Costumes were borrowed from the filmmaker Fellini, the third mention of Fellini in this episode, for his 1970 movie The Clowns. The animals would frequently get them into trouble, though. Rubel and Schrager received a citation from the New York Department of Health, Bureau of Animal Affairs, reading in part, Gentlemen, it has come to the attention of this department that a leopard and panther were present at, your, at a party in your establishment on or about December 13th, 1977. You are hereby advised that this incident was in violation of two different sections of the New York City Health Code. You are hereby ordered not to have animals in attendance on your premises. Love so much about that. <laughs> they only got an approximate time and date for the leopard and panther a party from michael and tina chow founders of the upscale chinese eatery mr chow's transformed the dance floor into a hong kong street scene with no disturbing racial overtones i am sure <laughs> for valentine for valentine's day for valentine's day studio 54 morphed into a garden with fully sodded flower beds picket fencing a group of harpists and busboys dressed as cupid The entrance hallway was lined with hundreds of televisions playing a supercut of famous cinematic kisses and love scenes. You know, VHS or Betamax at the time? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) On Oscar night, they ordered a literal truck full of popcorn and filled the dance floor with TVs so people could watch the ceremony while they danced. They decked out the place with palm trees to resemble the Coconut Grove, a silver screen era Hollywood hotspot. Naturally, Halloween was the biggest night of the year. Mark Fleischman, one of the managers and later owner of Studio 54, would say, One year we spent 50 grand transforming the main entrance hall into a haunted mansion that included live monsters jumping out at our guests as they made their way across rickety bridges through a graveyard while howling and other very strange loud noises played in the background. That was probably Bianca Jagger. (gasps) The party Alana Hamilton gave for Mercedes Air Mick Flick featured a Mercedes wrapped in gold lame. A brigade of Hell's Angels on Harleys roared onto the dance floor for Carmen D'Alessio's birthday party. Carl Lagerfeld held a candlelit 18th century party with the staff in court dress and powdered wigs. I would have thought he would have gone for more of a Third Reich vibe. <laughs> baby with Hugo Boss present. Oh Google that one, folks. Bianca Jagger's <laughs> birthday in 1978 was, disturbingly, a baby party with ice cream cone <laughs> vases, bowls of cracker jacks, busboys in diapers, and probably Brooke shields. Oh. <laughs> Bianca repaid cut as much of that as you want. <laughs> all of the all of the brook stuff. You think Epstein got it, cut his teeth here? Oh, I, you know what? I don't he know. He might have been he might like have been he too, might have only might have been, been like too young. 4 or 5, yeah. Uh Bianca repaid the favor for Steve Rubell's birthday by popping out of a cake before nearly suffocating in a blizzard of plastic snow. Stevie Wonder threw a party for his personal assistant, which he performed at. Presumably, somewhat lacking in the visual department, but just oh, a nice wow. thing to do for your personal assistant. <laughs> describing one party, former model, former model, <laughs> describing one party, former model Kevin Haley told Vanity Fair in 1996, "As you came up the ramp in the foyer, you looked out through little windows into little booths with little people doing things." Editor one, no,
4: that was yeah. I, yeah I editorial the was in there.
5: yeah. The one that sticks out in my head had a little people family eating a formal dinner. Apparently, a scene inspired by Hieronymus Bosch. Sure, man. Do with that what you will. These are a couple lightning round instances, but Jordan, take us on a tour of some of the just some of the more insane parties. Yeah, that serve as a reminder <sighs> that cocaine is indeed a hell of a drug. <laughs> Well, many in Studio 54 consider Elizabeth
4: Taylor's birthday in 1978 as the most amazing party of all. The Lady of Honor was treated to a performance by the Rockettes, which she watched from a float of gardenias while standing between then-husband, Senator John Warner of Virginia, and designer Halston. And this party apparently went a long way in bolstering the Rockettes' reputation because Radio City at this time in the late 70s was in danger of being closed down. So this brought a lot of attention to the Rockettes and saved them from presumably maybe shutting down, which I think is interesting. Liz was later presented that same night with a life-size portrait of herself made of cake. Her biographer offered this description in the book, The Lady, The Lover, The Legend of Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> A dozen well-endowed hunks, naked but for sequin posing pouches, and some with joints dangling from the corners of their mouths, scattered gardenia petals in the couple's path as they entered. The dancing and fun continued until the early hours, the atmosphere heavy with the stench of poppers, and Elizabeth bebopping with a bevy of gay porn stars, until John Warner, her husband, put his foot down and said they were leaving. Andy Warhol meanwhile wrote a less than flattering recap of the party in his diary which was later published. Liz looked like a belly button he <laughs> <Keep> wrote. <laughs> <right? laughs> the man had a way with words. What a like a thing fat to say. little cupid doll. Diana Vreeland was there and people were being brought over to Liz. She was the queen. I met a quarterback, Bob, presumably Bob Coloccio, the interview the editor of Interview magazine was watching Bianca Jagger take poppers, and he said to Diana Vreeland, it really becomes more like pagan Rome every day. And she said, I should hope so. Isn't that what we're after? (laughs) So that was Elizabeth Taylor's party. The folks at Studio 54 also threw a party in honor of Dolly Parton. But sadly, and sort of predictably, she was not that into it. When she visited the city for concert dates in May 1978, Steve Rebell somewhat condescendingly decided that they would transform the dance floor of studio 54 into a farm. What a
5: prick. I, yeah, yeah, I know she didn't grow up on a farm. You f-ing chud also it was one of the more, more successful Nashville singer songwriters for literally over a decade at this point. Ugh. Ugh.
4: Michael Mustel remembered in an e-documentary about studio 54. Steve went all out for that. They had haystacks and horses and donkeys and mules running through the club. Most of the animals were procured from a farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Isn't that where you're from?
5: No. Oh, Cumberland. Never mind. Yeah. Bucks County is, I think, closer to Philly. That might actually be where friggin' Taylor Swift is from. Yeah. We had big wine barrels we
4: filled with corn. We had a farm wagon we brought in and piled with hay. We had chickens in a pen. This is from club associate Rennie Reynolds, who is one of the organizers unfortunately the guest of honor dolly was less than amused dolly came and was completely freaked out by the number of people there club associate rennie reynolds continued she had not had a studio 54 experience she was real nervous about this whole deal and went up to the balcony and sat up there for a while Ew, she was not a comfortable lady there oh thought of studio 54 making dolly sad that's
5: yeah hateful
4: yeah My personal favorite Studio 54 party was the one held for the premiere of Grease in July 1978. The organizers turned the venue into Rydell High. Producer Alan Carr recalled in 1998, you walked in and the hallway was nothing but lockers, high school lockers on both sides. And then you went into the main part of the club and they had all these old convertible cars of the 50s. These were obtained by the aforementioned Rennie Reynolds, the kind of official party gopher guy who got livestock for Dolly's party. But these vintage autos were a lot harder to come by than farm animals. He said, I called various places and it was impossible. Nobody wanted to rent a car to Studio 54. So I found this little auto museum down somewhere in New Jersey, and they agreed to bring these cars up. And six Big fin classics were parked on the dance floor, but minutes before showtime and when the doors were supposed to open, the fire marshal threatened to shut it down, citing a major hazard. Apparently the cars hadn't been drained of gasoline. So each vehicle had to be taken out onto the street, where its tank was emptied, it was siphoned out and emptied, and then pushed back inside by hand. Everything went relatively smoothly after that, except for one minor incident. There was a 1950 Chevy convertible that got a bit trashed because people climbed in and burned the seats, Rennie said. So we ended up having to pay for new seats, but the party was wild.
5: They returned him to the auto museum and the guy's like, did did, did you guys f- my cars? <laughs> wait, wait Tr- Truman Capote's still in here. <laughs> Someone pops out trunk. of the trunk. Like, yeah. Ken <laughs> Jeong and the Hangover, like, <laughs> launched out of it naked. <laughs> it's Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> The last
4: major party that was held at Studio 54 before Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager were arrested for tax evasion, which we'll discuss shortly, took place on New Year's Eve 1978. Our dear sweet Rennie Reynolds, the man responsible for the 50s cars and Dolly's livestock, was tasked with turning the club into an igloo. He told the New York Times in 2020, We created walls of ice for the entire main room. The ice company came with blocks of ice and bags of crushed ice, and they told me that if you use the crushed ice between the blocks, it acted like mortar. We backlit the ice with black light that read as glowing blue. We had a couple of feet of artificial snow for depth. When I first walked in, the walls looked kind of frosted, but then they became more beautiful as the outer layers melted. There was also diamond dust. I used diamond dust a bunch of times. On any given morning, you could walk along West Fifty-Third Street at the back of the club, and you could see it sparkling. I, I wasn't sure. I googled to make sure that wasn't like some kind of industry set design term for just like random glitter. No, it's literal diamond dust, dust shaved from diamonds. Uh, Studio Fifty-Four was known for dropping items down onto the dance floor, everything from white balloons to ping pong balls and confetti and feathers. And on New Year's Eve. Four tons of glitter was dropped, leaving a four-inch pile. Ian Schrager, one of the club's co-owners, later said, You felt like you were standing on Stardust. People got the glitter in their hair and their socks. You would see it in people's homes six months later, and you knew they'd been at Studio 54
5: on New Year's. (laughs) Okay, man. (laughs) Yeah, just the, the eternal reply to everything about Studio 54. Uh, now, chord suddenly turns into a minor key. Gravelly voiced behind the music guy says, but it wasn't all diamond dust. (laughs) Uh, the downfall of Studio 54 actually has its seeds in the opening of the venue in spring of 1977. In the rush of everything they had to do to get the club open in six weeks, they declined to get a liquor license since the wait time was too long. Instead, they just applied for one-day catering permits, which are intended for weddings or parties. Steve Rubell and Schrager's company was technically called Broadway Catering Corp. And as a result, they had to renew the permit every 24 hours. Um, Various people differ over whether this was actually illegal, but the state of New York obviously didn't appreciate it. Isn't a liquor license in New York something like $50,000? It's a lot, yeah. And Studio 54 was obviously a little too visible to uh, bend the rules so flagrantly and publicly. They also didn't even have a certificate of occupancy or public assembly license. So they were just tempting fate for three years, almost three years. Not uh, even three years. They didn't even make it a month before they screwed this up. Oh, I always thought I thought it was the total lifetime. Uh, it took them less than a month for the good city of New York, Bing Bong, to catch up with them. Uh, Stephen Ian simply forgot to apply for their 24-hour catering license. Much like gay bars in the 1960s, the authorities had been watching them closely, fully expecting them to have a slip-up of this nature, and the New York State Liquor Authority was ready to bust them the night that it occurred. This wasn't just a fine. The club was invaded by 30 uniformed policemen. It was so over-the-top that bartenders assumed that they were just patrons in village people-like costumes until they shut off the music, turned on the lights, and kicked everyone out. Rubell and Schrager got arrested, and as Schrager said, from that moment on, we became a juice bar. They kept the place open for six months, selling juice, while encouraging people to secretly bring their own bottles and mix themselves. Uh, alcohol was actually not on the list of uh, of the highest consumer substances <laughs> at Studio 54. The uh, studio continued serving non-alcoholic drinks exclusively until a Justice for the New York Supreme Court ordered the New York State liquor authority to grant studio 54 a liquor license that october the liquor uh board god there's so many acronyms the nysla chairman's <laughs> the new york
4: state liquor association the new york
5: state liquor authority. authority complied with the supreme court ruling but objected to it claiming that the judge had been influenced by studio 54's upscale clientele But this was all only a preamble to an incident on December 14th, 1978, when the club was raided by dozens of IRS agents with a warrant to investigate claims of fraud and income tax evasion. In case the catering license anecdote didn't make this clear, Rubel and Schrager were bad at being criminals, and even worse, blatantly obvious about it. They openly bragged about the club's income, with Rubel saying during a TV interview, What the IRS doesn't know won't hurt them. (laughs) <laughs> what a fucking <laughs> idiot <laughs> It is really amazing how Like that's like just Man the Dunning-Kruger effect Just dumb people Just living their best life Out of vainglorious arrogance uh, Oh it gets worse If you go to Harvard They tell you not to do this stuff <laughs> um, They paid eight thousand dollars in taxes that year after taking in (laughs) multiple millions rubel also gave an interview to new york magazine in which he said profits are astronomical only the mafia does better this proved to be the literal straw that broke the camel's back and that it also probably did some cocaine through because a copy (laughs) of that article was literally sent to the irs with the quote underlined Supposedly, a disgruntled former employee of the studio contacted the IRS and told them that Rubel and Schrager were skimming money. And they were. <laughs> Narrator voice. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> In one year, they grossed $3 million and skimmed $2.5 off the top, hiding their tracks with the classic two sets of books trick. Skimming, for those of you who have never seen a mob movie, is when money is taken home and not reported to the IRS to pay taxes on. The only problem was that they hid a tremendous amount of undeclared cash on the premises, which isn't good when you're being investigated, since that tends to be the first place the IRS will look. Dip <laughs> nightclubs are oh, cash. Nightclubs are a cash industry, and they had so many bills in their bar register that it would overflow, and they literally couldn't close it. So they take the cash out every hour or so to empty it. Steve Rubell wore a huge puffer coat that he had lined with cash, like a kid smuggling sweets out of a candy shop. Each morning, massive portions of the previous night's take would be stuffed in garbage bags and hidden above ceiling panels, eventually smuggled home to Rubell's apartment and concealed in a secret room. All in all, it wasn't smart to openly brag about your egregious and poorly concealed crimes. And when one of their disgruntled ex-employees tipped off the IRS... The probable cause was quite probable. (laughs) Studio 54 was raided at 9.30 a.m. on December 14th, 1978. Somewhere between 30 and 40 IRS agents knocked on the door, which was opened by the cleaning guy. Ian Schrager showed up, was found to be in possession of an envelope of cocaine, and was promptly arrested. In addition to finding large amounts of drugs and cash in garbage bags stuffed above the ceiling panels, the IRS came across two sets of books— One for the IRS and one for the three partners. They would literally write skim or SK, which was helpful for the IRS. (laughs) Ultimately, the books revealed that they'd taken 80% of the club's earnings. Schrager called it the Richard Nixon of skims. Rubell apparently felt the same way. He greeted news cameras that day with a gleeful, I feel like the president. (laughs) This was one of the biggest busts in IRS history. $100,000 $100,000 in cash was found in the trunk of Steve's car and 900000 in a safety deposit box at Citibank. These financial books also contained detailed entries for party favors for guests, which, as we'll discuss, led to some hilarious revelations. The books literally outlined exactly who was being given which drugs. And the feds also found hundreds of thousands of party favors, drugs, in a safe in the club's basement what had begun as an investigation of tax evasion quickly spiraled into multiple felonies. And yet, Rubel and Schrager's chutzpah was undimmed. When one of the IRS agents at the U.S. Attorney's Office asked Rubel if they'd let him into Studio 54 if they saw him waiting on the street, Steve replied, Nah, you're one of the gray people. <laughs> you can, in a way, you gotta admire that. <sighs> to have just a fraction of that confidence. Yeah yeah in anything i do
4: (laughs) this is one of my favorite stories of this episode one of the many revelations found in the party favors book was a hilariously petty move on the part of the studio 54 owners in august 1978 steve rubel celebrated andy warhol's 50th birthday by presenting him with a garbage can filled with a thousand dollars in crisp new one dollar bills Warhol told his friends that it was the best present he'd ever received. In one especially playful moment, his friends tipped the garbage can over Warhol's head and showered him with the cash. He was not amused and got down on his hands and knees in a desperate attempt to collect all the bills. Studio 54's bookies kept meticulous records of all these gifts. And after these records were seized by the IRS, New York Magazine published a list of these party favors, and Warhol was shocked to discover that his pail of cash only contained $800 <laughs> and not a full thousand <laughs> like he was told. Oh. Warhol colleague Bob Concello wrote in his memoir Andy's first reaction was, You mean they told me there was $1,000 in there and there was only $800? Oh, I knew I should have counted
5: it. Ah, uh, true Pittsburgh legend. <laughs> Money before art. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Steve
4: Rebill and Ian Schrager spent a night in jail and were released the next morning on $50,000 bail apiece, worked out by their lawyer, the legendary Roy Cohn. Mm. Familiar to drama fans for being a character in playwright Tony Kushner's epic Angels in America.
1: And Trump's as- fixer.
4: Well I don't I, he might have been Trump's lawyer in the 80s. He was no, he's probably one of the most famous lawyers of all time. He was known as the legal executioner. He was the man who'd sent the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg to the electric chair in the 50s and served as Senator Joe McCarthy's personal pit bull during the great Red Scare of the 50s before going on to be a lawyer for a number of heavy duty mob guys. Rubell and Traeger were close to Roy Cohn, even socially. They threw him a birthday party at Studio 54, sending out invites that looked like subpoenas, which I appreciate. So this partially explains why the Studio 54 guys acted with such impunity. With Roy Cohn on their side, they basically felt like gods. But they also put their skimmed money to good use because Roy Cohn was apparently just one of, this might have been an exaggeration, but I've seen this number cited, 37 lawyers that the owners of studio 54 hired to defend them this included the guy who put jimmy hoffa in prison the man who represented attorney general john mitchell at the watergate trial and others in an effort to get their clients out of this self-created mess they took the novel approach of going after the presidential administration which is the legal equivalent of drop kicking a hornet's nest (laughs) They alleged that Jimmy Carter's White House Chief of Staff, Hamilton Jordan, had been one of the VIPs to partake in cocaine in Studio 54's basement. Though, as an article in People magazine read at the time, not even Jordan's defenders deny his reputation as a party goer. The strategy backfired. No charges were brought against Hamilton Jordan, and now the president's office, the highest office in the land, was pissed at Rebel and Traeger. George Bluth voiced,
5: I have the worst fucking attorneys. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why yeah, I, I, like, Pick a fight with... Yeah. <laughs> the
4: <laughs> the you laurel... literally have no leverage at all. <laughs> like, oh, man. I don't know. On uh, June 28th, 1979, a grand jury indicted Rubell and Traeger on 12 counts, including fraud, tax evasion, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy. One of the prosecutors couldn't believe that they had tried to get away with skimming 80% of the revenue. He said in a 2017 documentary, in the 33 months they were doing it, I think there was a skim of 2.5 or $3 million, an astronomical amount to skim, which was ridiculous. If you're going to skim, skim 10, 20%, not 80, they were being pigs about it. <laughs> well, I mean, the RS guy was like, okay, we know this happens, but yeah, Jesus. Yeah. This like, was a
5: bridge too far. Yeah.
4: Rubel and Schrager were sentenced to three and a half years in prison, plus a fine of $20,000. This was a very long sentence for first-time offenders, but public sympathy was largely not in their favor, especially after what jerks they'd been to people on the street. <laughs>
5: yeah, right. Like, yeah. again, unbridled hubris. Yes. People, people oh. clapping as your wax m- wings fell, melt and you fall into the sea. <laughs> uh, the overall sense was that
4: these guys finally got what was coming to them. But before they were sent downriver, they were determined to throw one final party. An epic going-away bash that they intended to be the best party Studio 54 had ever seen. Set for the evening of February 2nd, just two days before they were due to start their prison sentence, the final blowout was billed as the end of modern-day Gomorrah. Mm. The event list featured 2,000 of Studio 54's most faithful, including Richard Gere, Halston, Jack Nicholson, Reggie Jackson, Calvin Klein, Andy Warhol, who I guess forgave them for the $200 in his, yeah. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, who I can't really imagine at 54, and Lorna Luft. Diana Ross serenaded the owners from the DJ booth and Lorna's sister, Liza Minnelli, sang New York, New York to them. Steve Rubell got into the Sinatra spirit by wearing a fedora and playing my way over and over and over again, along with I Will Survive, both of which he drunkenly warbled along to. He also gave a speech from a mechanical platform high above the dance floor, hilariously framing his nightclub and subsequent financial fraud as a noble act. Steve was coked out of his mind, remembered one in attendance. (laughs) (laughs) Bianca was hugging him and he was saying, I love you people. I don't know what I'm going to do without studio. And everyone was crying and weeping. The moon with the spoon came down and everyone cheered as Steve kept playing my way and I will survive over and over until the dawn came haunting <laughs> <laughs> whatever happened to the moon um i don't know believe me i've looked into it i know that um hard rock bought there was a sun that mm. didn't have any drug paraphernalia with it Pass. but I, I i actually interviewed one of the hard rock cafe um historians and they said that uh hard rock declined to purchase the moon with the spoon i don't know where
5: it is now i'd very much like to know If you were a loved one (laughs) The morning after the party ended Rubel and Schrager were taken to Manhattan's Downtown Correctional Facility The de-rigger spot for New York's Hottest white-collar criminals (laughs) Where Jeffrey Epstein was found Dead, allegedly Of suicide Nearly 40 (laughs) years later Though Rubel and Schrager vowed to keep Studio 54 open While they served their time It immediately became apparent that things were not the same Their legal and financial problems Also continued to mount after the IRS bust, it became open season on the pair, and as soon as judges saw Studio 54 in the briefings, it was basically an open and shut case. Some people even sued because the doorman had been mean to them. <laughs> they lost their liquor license because the state of New York doesn't give them to convicted felons, and with all their offenses, it would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars in insurance each year to keep the place open. Ultimately, they sold Studio 54 while they were in prison, despite Rebel's insistence that he never would. One of the people interested in buying Studio 54 was reportedly Dick Clark, which, <laughs> LOL, LMAO. After a lot of complicated legal wrangling, the likes of which is not very interesting, the club wound up in the control of restaurateur Mark Fleischman, who did the deal with Rubel and Schrager in jail for $4.75 million. They would stay on as glorified consultants, but their involvement from then on was minimal. Fleischman was quoted as saying, I just wanted to make the place look straight and make it look reasonable and not so far out and not so illegal looking, thus robbing it of all of its appeal. <laughs> but but also a fairly low bar for a club owner. True, true. Uh, Two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Everyone agreed that it had lost its luster, both because it lacked the audacity of Rubell and Schrager and, you know, changing tastes as the me decade turned into the yuppie 80s. Case in point, 1982, radical social activist Jerry Rubin started hosting business networking salons, a networking event for business people at the club on Wednesday nights. Jerry Rubin, one of the original yippies alongside uh, Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman.
1: Right?
5: Oy. Uh, prospective guests would only be admitted if they had a business card, which is not a bit from American Psycho, but sure seems like one. Disco had died at the dawn of the 80s, and hip New Yorkers now looked downtown for their nightlife studio 54 passed through a handful of owners and by 1989 it was a shell of its former self with peeling paint and a dropped ceiling covering the famous dome it's like that um cvs on greenpoint avenue that used to be or manhattan avenue in greenpoint that used to be a disco
4: (laughs) i just walked by yesterday it's being like completely redone sad
5: oh were they maybe making it into a or they, it's still a cvs or they're making it into? no it's like it's like a shell now it's just like it looks like a building facade you can like look all the way through it now i think they, they cleared it out and they gutted it and sad <sighs> ultimately studio 54 was leased to the owners of the ritz nightclub who relocated their club there and clubs have operated at the venue under various names until 1996 when it underwent a conversion back to a theater which it has been since 1998. it is currently gearing up for production of the new musical days of wine and roses a bittersweet coda <laughs> and then everyone died steve and ian were released from prison in april of 1981 after serving just 14 months they'd been given a reduced sentence in exchange for cooperating with the government on other tax evasion cases in short turning rat <laughs> uh, classic roy khan defense technique this was also the guy who hoped to preside over the house uh investigation of american activities in the 1950s and as a result their reputation took a hit the prison sentence probably didn't help either they tried their hand at opening another club down on 14th street called the palladium it did become a popular hot spot for new wave acts and downtown new york artists like basquiat and keith herring but the exuberant hedonism of the disco era was hampered by the scourge of aids which decimated the scene that had hung out at studio 54 It claimed the lives of at least half of the bartenders and most of the set designers, not to mention many of the guests. Halston died of complication from AIDS, as did Studio 54's notorious attorney, Roy Kahn. So did the club's host, Joe Rennie, and ultimately so did Steve Rubell, who died in July 1989 at the age of 45. Rubell was closeted most of his life, and his cause of death was reported at the time as hepatitis and septic shock. He was given the diagnosis by his brother, a physician, and they agreed not to tell their parents and by extension the public the truth his funeral featured miniature velvet ropes which (laughs) fitting his gravestone is emblazoned with the phrase the quintessential new yorker ian schrager meanwhile became one of the premier developers of hotels in the country and on january 17th 2017 he received a presidential pardon from president barack obama This country.
4: A bizarre end to a bizarre story. (laughs) (laughs) In America, your ability to throw a good party trumps all. You know, I touched on this at the start of the episode. I have to admit, my feelings about Studio 54 shifted the more I learned about it for this episode. Initially, I thought this was just going to be an excuse to tell tales of absurd and often obscene decadence and depravity among the rich and obnoxious. And and we had that. We certainly had that, (laughs) especially especially in the last hour. But learning about the scene's roots in the post stonewall loft parties and seeing what a haven 54 was for an extremely wide demographic of often disenfranchised people made me rethink a lot of my cynical preconceptions about the club and dismissive views of disco. It may have been naive and irresponsible, but for many, Studio 54 was emblematic of an all-too-fleeting era of freedom without fear. Fear of legal persecution, fear of sexual diseases, fear of drug addictions, fear of social judgment. And all the insanity was an offshoot of that giddy, giddy feeling before the advent of AIDS, crack, and the social regressions of Reagan's America. Journalist Michael Musto ends an E! True Hollywood story doc on Studio 54 by saying... We knew it couldn't last forever. It had doom written on every piece of glitter. Nothing that fabulous could last forever. Right? Musto.
5: <laughs> you just got mustoed, folks. And Bianca Jagger was there. <laughs> on a horse. <laughs> and the horse was also present. That horse got turned into glue.
4: Use on the envelope to the subpoena. To-
5: <laughs> Sunrise, sunset, yes. the circle of life, and so forth. <laughs> Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtag. We'll catch you next time.
4: Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive
5: producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder-June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With
4: original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.